tries to just quote the stuff that's out there and he tries to stay ahead of, not ahead, but current oh. with... Well, you know what his argument would be. <laughs> but if you've got a better idea, maybe you should f- fucking publish it then. Maybe you should publish it. And then maybe I'll quote your peer-reviewed study. Yeah? Hmm? And Gabo Marte would say <laughs> that you can literally feel the trauma wrapped around his vocal cords. Now then, now then, chair. How are we doing? Good. Christmas is over. Oh, don't say that. Still got the deckies up. And yeah, I noticed that they weren't lit up. And I, when I went out today, my my inflatable display, the fan has broken, oh. and the lights within the deflated uh, Christmas present, Father Christmas, snowman, and reindeer were strobing. Stroking out. Stroke, yeah. Is that what that means? Is that, what, is that the technical term? No. <laughs> well, so one set of lights does all the inflatables? Just on the inflatables, yeah. Gosh. So the fan that pumps it up, is, I think it's broken. And that pumps up all of them? Mm. The snowman, the Father Christmas, yes, and they're the all present. joined. Yeah, there's more than that. The conjoined. Yeah. They're like the human centipede. Yeah, they are in, in in a lot of ways because there must be is because Santa's eating <laughs> snowman shit. Yeah, I was going to say that they, they are stitched together orifice to orifice, but it's it's the anal orifice, not the not mouth. Are your kids not scarred for life? <clears throat> they are right, um, but for other reasons. You're like you're like that Doctor Gunter guy, <laughs> the guy in the white lab coat, aren't you? Who sewed them together? Do you remember that guy from the movie? Yeah, it was that it was a very strange film that. Very, who came up with that idea? I thought it would be good. Uh, is this around the same time as like Sharknado and all that stuff was coming out? Maybe. Well, things that were just sort of wacky. Because it wasn't a serious film, surely. No, but it was, it was, was like disgusting, a, wasn't it? Yeah, but wasn't it meant to be like a, a comedy or a satire type thing? Well, maybe. But again, the you know, I just see um, I'm a very kind of concrete thinker when it comes to films very difficult to see beyond the only one that i could see beyond for the message what, are you blank. okay are you okay i'm fine yeah. <laughs> um was look up look up is it called look up i don't know it's your film what the one from last christmas about uh, the end of the world because of climate change but it was about oh fucking hell <laughs> right the the one with don't the... look up <laughs> That's it. Don't look back in anger. Yeah. The one where a meteor coming in, everyone's ignoring it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, that film, so that that's the only film that's been so on the nose that you've been able to detect the subtle messaging. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that the issue is is that it's, it's so awful. <laughs> right, okay. The writing is so awful on that that I could detect the uh, meaning. 
There was no nuance to it. No, it was on the nose. It was in your face. It was on the nose. It was, yeah. It was too I watched a new uh, film, a uh, Disney film. Um, the missus put it on for the kids called Strange World. Well, I think they watched that, but I didn't watch it. And uh, that's very on the nose with the... Uh, the message. Yeah, yeah. Well, I tried to watch... Um, and it wasn't because of the message. Um, the Witcher Blood Origins thing. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it wasn't because... It was just because it was terrible. Like, <coughs> it looked awful. Yeah. The sets were awful. The acting was awful. And the dialogue was awful. So, and I, I, I thought, I watched it for five minutes. And then it brings in all the, like, the main person who's going to lead it all. I thought, all right, okay. So she sings a song and stuff. And she Strong suggests, female character. Yeah. Um, and then um, I thought, right, well, I'll just turn it off now because it's awful. Yeah. And I thought, oh, well, I'll just give it 10 more minutes. And, uh, and then, uh, no, I just, I just turned it off again. It was awful. I mean, like, the the Witcher wasn't the best written thing. No. Um, it had its moments, did it? Yeah, and Henry Cavill in it. Fuck. Yeah, was, was good. Mm. And he played it like, uh, well, I've never read the books, but like the video game. I played the I played The Witcher Three, I think it's called, and he was he played it just like the character is in the game basically. Well, you know he's like an uber Witcher nerd. Well, like yeah, I he, believe so. Yeah, he loves the books and the video games. Well, he's going yeah he's going to be in a Warhammer film. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I believe well that's the rumor is that that's why he left. You see, because well, were... there's a dark rumor allegedly oh. around Henry Cavill. Mm. And apparently he's a... Um, Freemason. <laughs> Nephilim. Aren't we all? <laughs> um, Illuminatus! He's uh, a bit sort of... Uh, what's the word? I don't know. Limp dick city. Well, no, it's quite the opposite, I think. I think he's a bit sort of... Hard, funny village? He's... Um, takes a liking to younger girls on set oh now is this tied to the millie bobby brown thing because he no. co-starred with millie bobby brown in that sherlock film uh no i've not no. not have heard i think it's like you know runners oh uh, you know uh, not like pedophilia but like you know late teens you know people people's first jobs that kind of thing and allegedly he preys on them <laughs> and he's like overly familiar and you know that kind of thing where's this come from i don't know it's just like a, a rumor that well back in the bad old days i've not been on tiktok now for about a month yeah there was like a tiktok thing and i've read other articles and stuff on the internet about him alleged well how, how much so apparently that was a reason why he was let go from the witcher as well oh and also he's changed managers or something so he was he was a manager he was managed by the rock's ex-wife mm. and it seems that they've fallen out over something as well so. well that would be the black adam thing wouldn't it oh well he was in that wasn't he and then he lost well they dragged him they they, they, they got him to announce was it at the end of october 
that he was coming back as Superman and a big fan for it. So they dragged him into film. The The Rock uh, pushed for him to uh, be the right, okay. the cut scene at the end. Right. I want him. I want it at the end of my film because I'm The Rock mm-hmm. and I'm such a huge star. Right. Okay. Sorry, you're not. I mean, a, a bad actor. Well, I mean, he's just look at the, his numbers. His numbers aren't great. What he pulls at the box office, right. you know, he's the the the, the I thought he'd movie stars have died. The Tom Cruise is the last <laughs> the last true movie star. There's no to, no more Tom Cruises coming. No, no, yeah. I, yeah so I was thinking that. And uh, so they pushed for for Cavill to have that end of scene, end of credit scene in Black Adam, and then he got fired that this week. He's yeah. been dropped from Superman. I mean, to be fair, I think. Um, they want to reboot it and they probably need to reboot all of the DC things because every single film has been awful. It's a hot mess, isn't it? Yeah, the whole thing. I'll tell you what, um, I've not seen them all, um, but I thought the, the first Wonder Woman film was pretty good, but a bit long. I think if they could have cut like three quarters an I hour of that. that. probably the best one of really? a bad bunch. Because I think yeah, the Justice League thing was awful. The Batman thing was awful. What about the Pattinson Batman? I watched it, but it was like, I think uh, Ben said it, that you watched it and it was it was ridiculously long. It was like three hours long or over. And you got to the end of the film and you didn't, still didn't feel like you knew, any, knew the characters. It was weird. It was a very weird film. And again, they were trying to like, so it's got Batman in, Catwoman, Penguin, right, so and another one. I they're think trying to do one. too much too fast, whereas Marvel spent a decade yeah. building up to Infinity War, and mm. DC got caught with the pants down essentially. Mm. So they tried to throw everything in at once, and it just doesn't work. Does well, it? that was it. Was quite it was a novel idea. This in the filming industry, wasn't it, to have a universe, an extended universe, rather than it being singular films. I guess so. I can't think of any sort of. I mean, oh well. I mean, you could argue that maybe the alien predator thing—that that they tried to do a similar thing with that—but mm. obviously the the films got progressively worse from 1979 onwards, didn't they? Oh so, right. So you saying you saying that a- aliens <laughs> is is worse no. than Alien? No, no. And Predator, the first Predator film, is one of my favorite. I mean, those three of three of my favorite films ever. Mm. Alien one, two, and Predator. I'm well, sorry, yeah. but I'm I'm get to the fucking chapter, no? I'm uh, coming to the conclusion that films made outside of the Hollywood studio system are, are what what you need to watch now, basically. Just miles better, better written, better directed, uh, and better acted. Because I watched like um, it probably wouldn't have cost that much money to to make. It's called it's a Danish film. It's called The Bombardment. Right. And it's about an RAF mission to bomb the, the head- Infinity Stones to bomb yeah, to secure Thanos. yeah to secure the uh, what's it called the the, the Stargate box, the box thing <laughs> that you showed us the other week that was the guy oh was the talking Ark, about. Ark of the Covenant yeah that one um, bomb the SS headquarters in Copenhagen wow and that it, it was a really good film four mats I would right. give that. And it, you know, it was in Danish, except the REF bits. 
Um, and it yeah, was, what, what? <laughs> yeah. Did, they, did they ham it up? Did they have those big <laughs> biggles, goggles and moustaches? And... They had the nice furry uh, flight jackets and stuff. Topping day for a bombing mission, what, what? Um, but it was good. I would. It, that's on Netflix, mm. so I'd, I'd recommend that. You can be bothered. It's only an hour and 40, and it felt like you got to know everybody in the film. Like a, a, an hour and 40. How does Batman... A character that you already know, how can you make a film that's over three hours or three hours long and you get to the end of it and you still don't know any of the characters? Yeah. And people can do that. Like, you know, is the Predator like an hour and a half, an hour and four? Oh, yeah. yeah. That's what I mean. So it's mad, isn't I've it? I've been saying this for years, that the films are too long. They're all but it's not three that. quarters of an hour to an, to an hour long, too long, for what they need to be. Right, I'm not saying that there's no good long films. The Godfather is one of my favourite films, and it's for fucking age. Well, I was but it does say, something yeah, with it. That's the thing, isn't it? So I was going to say, my, my, when people say films are too long, <coughs> I was going to say that one of my favourite films, and I've said this before, is Once Upon a Time in America. And that's like, I think that's over four hours long, and yeah. that is an excellent film. And I would recommend that to anybody. Yeah. I've been wanting to watch Lawrence of Arabia because I've never watched that all the way through. And that's, I think that's over three hours. But you see, we would have gone to the cinema to watch that and there would have been an intermission or possibly two. Well, I was thinking about this. When did intermissions end? I think that's pretty recent, like maybe the 80s. Because you would, now it's about, and it's also moved away from single screen cinemas to multi-screen cinemas multiplex so the more if you have a, an intermission it means you can play less films and therefore you make less money don't you well it depends because i mean they would have sold at the concessions and yeah interview. no but ice cream versus 15 quid to see an a-list film well they've already paid for it so i mean what, what how many films you know if, if you show uh let's say you show eight films a day and you have a half an hour intermission so yes you're film. losing four yeah. You're losing four hours. Yeah, so, so you're losing one, another one film. film. Yeah, yeah. So, but if, then if you have a thousand seats or whatever. Um, I don't know. I, from the way I, I understand it is that less people are going. Yeah, generally. I've And that's, that's why the price has to go up. Yeah. There's, there's a smaller audience, so they have to keep jacking the prices up. Well, there's also this new... I mean, not, this is something I've encountered over the last couple of years, that it's that... Uh, so for, there's like these... I can't remember what it's called, like... I'm just going to say, like, premiere films, and they charge an extra £2 for the ticket, basically. Oh, it's a bit like... I remember when this was brought in for <coughs> football matches. Oh, so you'd have a, a thing? A-class matches, B-class. Right. So, yeah, if you want to go and watch Pit Preston North End versus um, Doncaster Rovers, that may be a B-match. Mm. But if, say, Newcastle had just been relegated, that mm. would be an A-match, and they'd charge you more. Wow. Did it make any difference to the attendance, whether it was like a big team? I wouldn't know. It was after I stopped going. I'm sure it was that they brought this in. And it was only two tiers at first. Right. But, um, yeah, I mean, football's very expensive to go to now, especially if you've a family. Mm. It's like two adults, two children. I imagine even on uh, what not, what division are North ending? Are they in the championship? championship. Mm. Right. So for two adults and two children, I would imagine that's going to cost you the best part of 100 quid. I would say so. If you got, if you that's fucking retarded. It's yeah. much nothing. <laughs> um, I know, yeah, yeah. What's before you've had a pint, a pint mm-hmm. at half time? So that's one hundred and fifty, isn't it? <laughs> it's mad. 
I don't know how people afford it. I don't know how they do it. I mean, but I suppose... Season tickets. Well, I was yeah. talking to a guy who's a swimming, a son's swimming class, and he said that, uh, now, no offend, if you get an adult season ticket, you get a child season ticket for free. <coughs> yeah. And I'm guessing an adult season t- ticket would be, what, about 300 quid, 350? I think it... If you if you're not renewing, I think one of our mates got. I mean, Osnos got uh, one for. I think it was like in the mid two mid two hundreds. Yeah, I mean, he was the, renewing and he got it earlier. They should be paying you to watch it, to be honest, shouldn't they? Because it's it's garbage. <laughs> it's absolutely fucking garbage. Well, football generally, or well, North End football. Well, I mean, I would say football generally. Plus, that's like it's not even good football. You know. No. I think it's more, um, there's other elements to it, isn't there? I think, I think in, in a certain respect, it's that, it's kind of like the church thing, in that you're going somewhere as a part of a group with a, similar ideas, although at, at North End it tends to be that like everybody is just, just thinks North End is shit all of the time um, and should be doing miles better than they are all of the time which I find bizarre um, and uh, but I think yeah, I think it's it's like it's almost like a a church thing a religious thing football it's a tribal thing isn't it basically and that's church stuff isn't it religion it's certainly a tribal thing um, I mean you could argue that there's a difference in religion um, faith, but you have to separate faith from religion. Mm. That's the thing. I have a problem with religions in general. It's because it, you know, just read through history; it just gets corrupted yeah. by blokes, generally at the top. Well, we've just moved in the history of Rome podcast to, um, which I found quite interesting. And I was hoping Ben was going to be here tonight to talk about... Um, His right bollock explosion. Yeah. <laughs> He's um, raised by... We could talk to you about raised by wolves and Sol Invictus. Sol Invictus? Raised by wolves? What's that? That's that TV programme with the mad flying snake worm thing. Snake And it's all snake? about religion. A cosmic serpent? Yeah. It's, wow. it's, you've got to watch it. I think you'd like it. Right. It's, it's pretty good. Yeah. When the religion gets involved, yeah. Why, what's it got to do with Sol Invictus? So Sol Invictus, is that like a real Roman god, the singular god? Well, it's unconquered. Is that what he's called, Sol Invictus? Sol Invictus was the name of the religion, right. the, the, the cult. And what was the name of the god? Sol Invictus. Right. Was named after him. Yeah. Unconquered son. It so was it Aurelius was the first one to adopt him then? First emperor. No, I th- no, it's Elagalibus. I think he might be after him, though. But he said, no, he said, well, I'm pretty sure Mike Duncan was saying that, um, is Elagalibus is before Aurelius? Yeah. All right, well, maybe, no, he uh, did, yeah, he did. Yeah, he, there was someone before, but he tried to force it on the population and oh, get gosh. rid of the, uh, the, 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 uh, What's it called? We have loads of gods. P- the pagan pantheon. Yeah. yeah. Try and get rid of that. But he, Aurelius, he was saying, didn't do that. And it was like 100 years later, wasn't it, or something? 
That's it. Yeah. Yeah, Elagabalus uh, sort of like came marching into the Senate in drag with makeup on and like highly effeminate, um, sexually epicurean, very, you know, like free love, this sort of idea. And it was like it didn't wash well with the sort of um, what would you, how would you describe Roman society at that time? Like a strict patriarchal. Um, yeah, it seems that it was conservative all the way through. But I think yeah. you could argue that that's where at least Western civilization comes from, really. Or you took on a lot of the laws and a lot of the uh, oh gosh, like the the, the legal system. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why so many sort of Latin words in our, mm-hmm. in our sort of lexicon, legal lexicon, it comes directly from Rome, obviously tweaked and stuff. But yeah, so I was talking. About about Aurelius, so he was like the first one, but it was it was quite interesting at that point. He was saying that, um, and I think the next one because we're kind of getting to now, um, Constantine is on the scene, but as a grandchild, I think, yeah, someone or a son to one of the four uh, Caesars or Augusti, because um, he's just started to split things up and. Um, <clears throat> Not Aurelius who splits it up, is it? Because he dies. He's someone who gets killed. I can't remember who it is. Um, it is... Is it not Diocletian? Yeah, it is Diocletian. It, it becomes a tetrarchy, doesn't it? It splits into four, and you have yeah. a Caesar, and my Roman history is fucking rusty as fuck. I've not been reading it for the last couple of years, but uh, I'm pretty sure it's Diocletian who, who... No, it's Diocletian, and then initially it's two, and he makes it, and he thinks, no, we need four, and it's an Augustus and, and a, a Caesar. Caesar, yeah. Well, you have an Augustus who's like the the uh, the higher rank mm. and generally an older, more experienced statesman. And then to, yeah. he takes or nominates a Caesar mm. to learn off him. And you have a Western yeah. Augustus and Caesar and a, an Eastern Constantinople mm. Augustus and Caesar, don't you? Mm-hmm. That's what sort of uh, stopped it from falling to bits. Is that the that's crisis of the third century? I think, isn't it? Well, it's just coming to an end now because yeah, Diocletian sorts it out, but only not only briefly. Mm. Doesn't last. Doesn't last. Spoiler alert! So fucking hell, yeah. yeah. And then um, <laughs> yeah, so but the, the reason I was talking about it was, it was it, I found it quite interesting that this this idea of a singular god. He kind of said, "Well, this is maybe where it comes from, and this is why it made it easier for Constantinople." Constantine, sorry, to um, split away and, and make it like a, a Christian empire. That's interesting. I've not uh, I've not come across that before, even though I've, I've listened to the History of Rome podcast. I'm sure I listened to it all the way through, but it's a long time ago now. So I bet it's... Did it start in like 2006 or something? 2007? Six or seven, yeah. Yeah. So um, I mean 2010, the ones that I'm listening to are from 2010. We're in 2010. Mm. I think there's another 50 episodes or more. Oh, right. So he's only going to the fall of the Western Empire then. And then it stops, I I guess. I think so, yeah. Yeah, so it would be 4.30, something like that. Yeah. And the other interesting thing was then that something about... He started started to mention about it, I think, and he was alluding to, like, you know, the papal state and stuff. Um, And so, like, you know, one person... Oh, it was something about... Constantine getting this guy unwittingly, he didn't want to do it or he didn't know he was doing it, but basically um, he was ahead of the church, essentially. 
but I can't remember his name. The Bishop of Rome. I think it must have been, yeah. Mm. It's all uh, it's all interesting, this sort of period. I love this period from like the apostolic era to uh, the early church and through the persecutions and then eventually coming to Constantine where it becomes a state religion. Mm-hmm. And even after that, you get these councils, like um, Constantine's famous for the Council of Nicaea, he arranged that, where they drag all these bishops from across the empire to have these councils. And they, they decide, like, you know, when we go to church, we re- read the creed. Mm-hmm. Like, that, that goes back to, like, Nicaea. That's what they were doing because you had all these rival sects with different ideas yeah. in early Christianity. It wasn't unified, mm. and that's what the councils did. It's like you had these Gnostic fucking weirdos. Well, no, that's the <laughs> thing, yeah. And uh, Essenes, and because it wasn't even called Christianity, there wasn't the, that wasn't even a name. Mm. You know, they were all they were all sort of Jewish sects, or sort of derived from them. You, you hear you read about like the Nazarenes and the Essenes, and uh, all these sort of strange subcultures that were all that we all now, looking back two thousand years ahead, classes Christianity, but they wouldn't have mm. sort of. I, I don't know when that that name arose when it arose it would be from the the roman writers at the time who would mm. have sort of eventually called them this name it's like um what was i reading about the other day um the council of constantinople which was about 530 ad something like that and it was all sort of done on the sly it wasn't like um it was arranged by the emperor in constantinople I can't remember which one maybe or the pope and that's when the um, the they made reincarnation heretical. Mm-hmm. Before that, they believed in reincarnation. Mm-hmm. A lot of the Christians, mm-hmm. but no, it just changed like that with the stroke of a pen. <laughs> Wild. That's why it was talk to a modern priest, a bishop about <coughs> reincarnation. Oh my gosh! Uh, yeah, but Sol Invictus is one of the gods in. Well, it's the god of the the religious. So there's the religious people and the atheists they're called um in the tv show yeah in the raised by wolves thing so it's saul invictus and he so he thinks that his son is going to be saul invictus this guy he's not really his son it's very complicated but basically the last series second series ended with him in a crucif an upside down crucifixion pose so it was like that and then, and it's gone now it's gone it was honestly, it was absolutely fucking mental. Like the the gone. See, you mean it's been cancelled? Yeah. Right. But the story was brilliant. Like you know about, and it's Adam and Eve, and it's all about um, sort of like the creation. Now I'm thinking about it. It probably is just an allegory for the creation of Christianity. But it's esoteric mm. in its uh, symbolism and stuff. Yeah, the serpent and stuff. Yeah, I find this stuff really interesting. I just finished this book this week. Uh, it's an old book. Uh, oh, it's not that one. It's an oldie, but a goodie. Is it? I left it in the house. Jesus in India. Oh yeah, Jesus in India. So Jesus in India. I, I I've heard. Have I heard stories of like Christianity getting so? Someone? No, maybe I'm thinking of Alexander going to India or something and then yeah. turning back. You got to the Indus Valley, yeah. Uh, 
Well, yeah, Christianity did get to India. Mm-hmm. And the book just argues that it was the main man who took it there. Right, okay. Uh, the, uh, the Catholic Church would say that St. Bartholomew was the first. Mm. First sort of, a, not apostle, but a disciple, maybe, to get to India. Um, but I remember on a show we had there, uh, when we had uh, Edmund Marriage, mm-hmm. and he's no longer not longer with us. But he was talking about Thomas going to India because mm. he's Jesus' brother. But the book argues that Jesus went there. There's like a tomb and fucking all sorts. Mm. But you just don't know. It's like I've read so many books about uh, sort of alternative theories to what happened with Jesus, the whole story. Mm. I've heard all of them, all the different stories, and you're left thinking... Nobody knows. No, and it's like... A lot of these books can have different ideas and make perfectly reasonable arguments and provide evidence and stuff. And it's like, you just got to go with your gut, I guess. You know, you got to take a time machine, can you? There's a good chapter on the Turing Shroud, which I quite enjoyed, because I've never read anything about the Turing Shroud, know nothing about it. And uh, that was a good chapter. I enjoyed that one. Sort of, um, there's a conspiratorial argument with the Turing Shroud. Because, you know, do you remember, I think it was in the 80s, um, it was discredited through carbon dating mm. as a medieval, like mm. a 13th century copy or something. Because there's something unique about it in the way that the image has been put into the cloth. It's mm. like we don't know, as far as I know, it's, we can't recreate how it was done how that image was in, uh, put in the cloth. So there's something enigmatic about it, in my opinion. But um, they did carbon testing on it in the 80s, I think. And uh, the Catholic Church sent four samples, I think, to four different carbon dating labs, like with no description, just, tell, you know, they, they try and do it scientifically, don't they? You don't want to bias mm-hmm. the person who's receiving it. You don't say... By the way, it's a piece of Turing Shroud, so... You know, because if, say, the, the scientist was a, a hardcore Christian, that wouldn't might mm. uh, Im- impede his judgment in, in his evaluations and whatnot. So they sent them off anonymously. And the four samples all came back, saying 14th century or whatever. So that was it. Turing Shroud. Pay no more attention. Mm-hmm. Nothing to see here. And uh, in the chapter in the book... Uh, Jesus in India is talking about like um, actually the uh, the samples under closer scrutiny bear no resemblance to the type of fibers that they used in the 14th century. It looks much older, mm-hmm. and uh, you know it's one of them. It's like there's still a question mark there. It's like the book makes a lot of com- in this chapter makes a lot of compelling evidence of why the shroud is legit. Mm-hmm. That is the shroud that was used. But we take one piece of evidence, carbon date. Oh, that's it. And you're meant to throw it. You cast aside all that evidence, mm-hmm. the physical evidence, and you know when they look at how it was used, how how it was wrapped, and where the the marks have been, le- have, have ch- you know, transferred from the body, and all this sort of stuff, and the chain of historical chain, like they can date it historically, a chain of custody, mm-hmm. I think at least to the 14th century, if not before. So, but on the basis of one piece of evidence, a computer says, 
current date. The computer says no. <laughs> you throw everything else out. And that's what I find interesting because the argument makes the book that Jesus survived the crucifixion. And they use the gospel accounts plus all sorts of other evidence to make this argument. It's a compelling argument. And that, I mean, right. Oh, my gosh, this is going to be dark for a Christmas episode. <laughs> right, the man got crucified, right? Yeah. And according to the gospel account, I believe, I might be wrong, or maybe it differs between the t- two gospel stories because the four gospels agree on very little they have different, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, there's not much. They've all got different bits added in or sort of, you know, it's hard to interpret. Uh, but I think he is crucified for three hours, between three and five hours, right. then declared, and then he dies, mm. which is very short mm. for a crucifixion. Mm. Crucifixions generally last for days. That's the point. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to die in three hours, right? That's not enough suffering. So that's a question mark. Why did he die so soon? Uh, and I've heard this. There's several books I've read that have put similar hypothesis to this, but there is a scene in the gospel where he's offered the sponge mm. and maybe there was something on that sponge to knock him out because as soon as he takes the sponge, he cries out and mm-hmm. loses consciousness or dies, mm-hmm. whichever you want. And then Longinus comes up in one of the gospel stories, I think John, Mm. Balks him in the in the side to check he's dead. Mm. That guy may also have been a Christian. They're everywhere, weren't they? According to this book, because his secret cult. Yeah, uh, and then <coughs> unusually again, Joseph of Arimathea and um, fuck a totally unconnected guy. I'm blanking on his name. Not Nathaniel. Uh, Nicomedes. Nicomedes. Yeah, Nicomedes and players. <laughs> Joseph Arimathea and Nicomedes go to Pilate and beg for the body and they take the body back and it's a big rush job and they get the body down off the cross and stick him in the tomb. Mm. So it implies, you know, there's sort of, it's, it's interesting when you read the gospel side by side with this guy who's making an argument using the gospel text plus other evidence about, you know, what he was wrapped in, the herbs. Mm. He brought 100 pound weight, 100 weight, of, I think it was aloes and uh, myrrh, mm. £100 worth. Mm. That's, why? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, £100, that's like eight stone. It's like carrying Zeus, Zeus about. <laughs> Just doesn't make sense. Mm. So, you know, the, the author argues that, that there's elements of John's gospel that are sort of setting you an odd clue here, there. Mm to the real story that he was taken down from the cross and revived. And he, and uh, then he goes off to India, according to this book. Right, okay. What do you do in India then? Just chill? More at same. More preaching. Right, okay. Good news, man. <laughs> <coughs> so what is he saying? That, that, that when did... And then he lived till he like died at maybe 82. Or a bit older. 1982? No, no, at the age of 82. So, you know, 54, 57 right. AD. And the, there is a tomb. Srinagar. It's in Kashmir. Okay. Yeah. I'm on board. But it's one of them. It's like, you know, you read it and think, well, it's, it's interesting. Mm. Make some good points. That's enough for me. 
I'll move on. You know, I can guarantee I can pick another book up with just as a compelling theory as yours, Mm. and that completely contradicts it. So, you know, take it for what it is. Good. And, you know, I was going to say I enjoyed it. I don't really enjoy many books these days. I really don't. It's more like fucking study than anything else. Mm. I read this book. Um, That's one that I do have. And it's been bigged up. Bigged up by the Discorders, or the Elementers, the Cosmic Serpent book, by uh, DNA and the Origin of Knowledge by Jeremy Narby. Right? I didn't realise it was an old book, but it's mid-90s it was read. Yeah, old man. (laughs) Fucking is, really. Uh, Quarter of a century old. I think I read it in, like, two days. Okay. Just, uh, it's good, it's sort of a narrative base. He essentially thinks that when the shamans smoke, uh, ayaw- uh, take ayahuasca, mm-hmm. they're actually reading DNA. <laughs> they're seeing DNA. DNA emits photons, and, and the, 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 the ayahuasca seems to lower their conscience to a degree where they can... Consciousness. Con- consciousness, yeah, mm-hmm. where they can communicate with DNA. I've heard this, I think. I think it, it might be. It must be about this guy's book. Any chance he he tried he tried some DMT whilst he came up with this theory? Well, that's it's a narrative <coughs> uh, sort of setup. So right. he's an anthropologist, right. and for his PhD, he wanted to go to South Africa, uh, South America, and in, it's in Peru, mm. the, the tribes he visited, yeah. and study him firsthand and talk to him, mm-hmm. and he gets talking to the shamans. And they explain, but the thing is, he tells, he starts witnessing things. Mm. He witnesses the shamans heal people, <laughs> and he's like, uh, and he's like a rational mm. materialist anthropologist, and it starts questioning. His, it starts uh, sort of eating at him, and he has to sort of open the pos- the door that open your mind. That there might be something in the shamanism, and um, he ends up taking ayahuasca. Mm. And he's talking to these, he says there's these two giant fluorescent serpents and uh, I'm terrified of them. Mm. And it's it's the Caduceus. Does he, get, does he get through it, though? Yeah. He gets through the terror, the, the fear. And it, what it, happens on says, the other side of the fear? Does he have... He's stepping over, he has to say, excuse me, while he's stepping <laughs> I, I, to vomit. <laughs> I see that he's, um, <coughs> whilst tripping balls, he's managing to keep his British... Sensibilities He's French Canadian, to be fair. Oh. Right. But um yeah, I mean it's completely changed him. Okay. But I don't know I don't think it's oh gosh. It's like he talks about seeing as believing. Yeah. He says sometimes you have to believe first before you can see it. Oh. And uh it's interesting. I think you'd really like it. It's a real page turner. And and the narrative style helps it. It tells his story. Mm. while he's exploring how he came up with this idea and what his rationale was, and it goes into microbiology and anthropology mm. and psychology and all sorts. But really fascinating, because I, d- I didn't know anything about shamans. Well, this is... Yeah. this is the, in, Jordan Peterson talks about shamanism a lot. Yeah, he's an honorary member, isn't he, of a, a North American indigenous tribe? He might be, I don't know. He is. Yeah. I think Gabor Mate is, definitely. I'm sure he is. All right. Yeah. Um, because he does he does more with psychedelics, but he talks a lot of 
research is Jordan Peterson in psychedelics. Um, but yeah, in terms of like shamanism, it, you know, it's the basis of religion essentially, isn't it? So it's pre-religion or organized religion, I guess. Um, and but it's kind of saying that that's where a lot of the um, the magic happens, basically. Yeah. And you were goal to be healed, you know, not just for kind of um, physical illnesses, but mental ones as well. He describes like there's four in this particular area is in this four sort of school like school. He says it's like the Oxford, Cambridge, Stanford <laughs> yeah. of shamanism. And these places are renowned in these particular tribes in the locale are renowned for. And he said different shamans specialize, you know, sort of have specializations in different things and stuff. It's like. I'm totally open to the idea. I, I'm sort of one of these people who thinks that we know nothing and we have a very small grasp on what's going on. I can't remember what I was listening to. And, oh, I think it was, is there a Dennis... Oh, McKenna? Yeah, Dennis McKenna, isn't it? Turns his brother. So I think I was listening a bit to that and uh, it was being interviewed by Jordan, JP. Oh. And... Um, I, that made this thing made sense to me. Basically, there's <coughs> a lot of um, comparisons made between sort of like the conscious mind, the brain, and a filter. So, like when and one of the ideas is when you take a psychedelic, is that it switches that filter off because what our brain is doing is trying to make the world a manageable place for us to exist in, essentially. So we're not overwhelmed. So we don't see everything, basically. Um, and another thing you've got to be mindful of uh, is um, um, everything you're seeing. You, you, you could say is a, 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 an an or a hallucination, basically. Oh, it goes into that early in the book, in that what you see mm. is created in the brain. Yeah, that's you know, the, that is that is the, that is what a, a, an hallucination is, basically. It talks about hallucinations as well. So like the and shamans, oh gosh, he, t he talks about anthropology in the early twentieth century, like up up until the seventies, mm. and they essentially classed the shamans as psychopaths. They were psychotic, <laughs> and he makes the point. It's like they fear what they don't understand. They just don't understand it, so they mm. have to label it. Yeah, and, and modern rationalism does this as well through belittling. Mm. You know, uh, we don't understand that, um, but we can't say we don't understand it. So we'll call it pseudoscience, or we'll call it magic, or um, witchcraft, whatever. This is the other thing as well. Is about I think it's called the mind-body dualism, or you know, basically the two being separated. And I'm not sure that that's true either. Well, I'm pretty sure that it's not true. What do you mean by the mind, though? Well, I suppose that is essentially your consciousness, isn't it? And uh, and the role that your consciousness has over your physical body and how you feel, your illnesses, the pain, all that kind of stuff that you might be feeling, essentially. And the, I, I think it's starting to um, disappear a little bit, but there was a very much a stage in psychology, I guess, where the mind was thought of very differently as away from the body, essentially. 
It's a separate entity, essentially. Really? Yeah. So you have your brain, but you have your mind, essentially. Oh. Oh, right. Oh, I was thinking along different lines. I was thinking about, like, the placebo effect and stuff. How the the, bre- the mind can well, yeah, but that's the well, that's the thing, and that's an argument against it being separate. It's not right. a separate thing because it, you know, the one and two are combined essentially. Yeah, but I would say, um, like, me and this chair aren't separate. No, we're all made of the same stuff, and it's all energy and vibrations and shit like that, mm-hmm. and frequency. Yeah, it's like everything, every molecule in the universe is connected. That's yeah, man. <laughs> I think that is true. You know, that's why I sort of <coughs> still open, have a, a, an, o- an open door for things like astrology, even though most people think it's complete woo and and, and whatnot. Wait, you mean the basis for religion as well? <laughs> no, but I mean, there could be something in it, in where you're born and, and, and sort of what things are aligned in which places. And I don't know. I'll leave. I'm open to the possibility. The thing is, I don't just laugh at it and say, "Well, that's nonsense," because I don't understand it. Are you? Um, what's your star sign? Pisces. What does oh, that Jesus. mean? What do, What does that mean about your? What does it say about your personality? Do you know? Oh, I don't think it, it's, it works like that. That's okay. that's like that's um, the Daily Star horoscopes yeah. where you see Pisces, and this is what it means. Well, obviously, that's not true because there's. You know, a twelfth of the population is a Pisces. They can't all have the same experience. I do. No, that's nonsense. No, I think it's more to do with. No, I, I, but I mean, in a general sense, do you not think it has any influence av- over how you behave? You know, in the horoscope, it's kind of like you, you will meet a dark and handsome stranger. Yeah. I mean, I see that every day in the mirror. So, um, <laughs> the, you know, there could be shared character traits okay. under different star signs. I don't think so. But um, I don't know. I'm not going to write it off and say, because it doesn't make sense to me that it must be bullshit. I'm open to it. I'm thinking more of, um, like, if you ever get a chart done, a birth chart done, it's very specific. So it's the exact location you're born at the the certain day at the certain time. Mm. So that's very specific rather than just what month you were born in. And sort of in what position the planets were at the moment you were born how that relates to your specific location where you came into the world how bright mars was <sighs> mars is bright tonight there might be something in it i mean there might not but i'm i'm not going to you know rule it out because because it sounds kooky or whatever no you know i don't know i don't know it does that symbolism work to such a degree i don't know don't know enough about it I had a chart done a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and I enjoyed the experience, really. I enjoyed it. It was interesting. Mm. And um, my advice was that I probably should be in teaching. Really? Yeah. But I don't know. Maybe we'll get... It's a former guest of the podcast who did it. Maybe yeah, we'll I think I remember. I remember him offering it. Yeah. It's interesting. Mm. But I don't know. It's a good book, though. Cosmic Serpent. Mm. 160 pages. Wow. Yeah. I'm interested now. Yeah, like the last 60, the notes, it looks thicker than it is. It's like me. Mm. It's good. 
I tried to find him online and he's like, he's a ghost. He's not there. <coughs> no Twitter, no social media I can find. Maybe he's like in, maybe he's in the shaman he's uh, university in the system. Maybe. Maybe. It certainly uh, opened my eyes to a lot of things that I was unaware of. Mm. Regards to uh, shamanism and stuff. Mm. I mean, it's not something we're taught, is it? No. Um, it's interesting. Like, um, do you remember at high school you used to do like RE? Mm. And you would learn. We went to Catholic school, so it was heavily about gospel stories and stuff. Yeah. But we did have lessons about Buddhism and Judaism and Islam and stuff, didn't we? Sikhism. See, yeah. All of them. But nothing on shamans. No. That wasn't there. I no. We're. We're very much lacking in sort of South American history. It's like a whole continent. Yeah. Don't get taught anything about it, really, do we? Oh, I think of shamans as well in Africa, don't you? Yep. <coughs> Maybe the term shaman is like almost a little bit derogatory as well. <coughs> do you know what I think others them. There were shamans everywhere. Egypt. Um, <coughs> Druids? Uh, to me. Well, that's what I mean. Now, was going to, that was just coming to my mind as well, like pagans. Yeah, I mean, like the Celtic Druids mm. from uh, Anglesey. They ended up in Anglesey. That was the last holdout before they got wiped out. But I think there's some analogy there between sort of South American shamanism mm. and Druids. I think they probably, probably fulfilled the same functions. Well, when you think of a witch and what people were accused of being or which people were accused of being witches was quite often you know people that you use like kind of Toss a coin to your I wish it was that good still it was in it it was in the first five minutes and he still couldn't rescue it oh yeah uh, of the prequel thing yeah what's he called the fucking Geralt uh, no um <sighs> the song the singer oh gosh I don't know I never watched it <laughs> um let's play the jingle <laughs> <laughs> That's a good place. Um, what were we saying? Talking about shamans and... and uh, I think that this... Like you said, you said it's the first religion. I wouldn't call it a religion. No, that it's, is, it's. I think it's the basis of a religion. Yeah, until they got wiped out. Mm. And then people realised, whoa, you know, with this religion stuff... And these, uh, we can build these things called temples, mm. and then maybe we, maybe we can take ten percent, yeah, for everyone else, mm. you know, for the temple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think this is where it comes from. You know, I think if um, if society got reset, we'd end up back with a sort of uh, neo shamanism, mm. like people who know how to make a fire for a start. Yeah, you know, um, people who understand S- simple. Science. Yeah. Mixing certain things. The properties of certain things. What's interesting about the book is the way he he says the way... If you talk to the shamans and ask them how they know what they're doing, mm. they say, well... Plants tell us. Spirits tell us. Yeah. Yeah. The the, the animators mm. of this realm. And we communicate. And he tells... He tells he goes into a little bit about the sort of um, initiation process for being a shaman. Where you like go into the desert for two months oh, and just take ayahuasca all day for, for fucking day after day after day. And you think, 
Yeah, you can sort of understand some of the early 20th century anthropologists thinking they were psychotic. Mm. But um, I don't know. I think there's something in it. I think there's something in it. And the book's convinced me. I believe him mm. in what he's saying. But the thing is, is um, the again, it's, I think it's a little bit of hubris in terms of um, we like to think that we know a lot more than we do, especially when it comes to the brain. Oh, yeah. But the consciousness. More, the more I read about sort of like the brain and MRIs, the more I'm, I think about um, neophrenology, basically. What's that mean? I know what, phrenology is the skull here, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Where it was in like the 1800s, weren't it? Where they sort of labelled, they divided the brain up into several, all these different sectors mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. labelled them and thought, well, this is to do with this part and this is to do with that well, part. It was, to do with the shape of your head, wasn't it, as well? The lumps and bumps. Yeah. Yeah, if you had any and whatnot. Um, but it's, it's this idea of a correlation. So, you know, when it's a, when you're doing an fMRI, you're just correlating. So there's blood flow here. Mm. Um, or electrical activity. Doesn't it measure that as well? No. no. So basically, an fMRI, what that is recording is the magnetic difference between oxygenated and unoxygenated blood. There's a slight difference. Right. So, yes, the basis of that is potentially electrical activity. So there's something else, isn't there? Yeah, where they say, look, the brain's firing here. So that's like, oh, what's that called? Uh, It's like like the electrodes that you put in your head. And um, I think... Yeah, so there's there's a difference between knowing why that increased blood flow happens and how that results in you thinking something versus this part of the brain is associated with you thinking this. Do you not think? Yeah. Again, going back to the book, he talks about microbiology and um, cell biology. And the microbiologists, they have to they have to keep making up these anthropomorphic terms. Like, the ribosomes are like um, computers. Mm. And uh, the genes are like uh, machines, robots. Yeah. And the DNA is code, it's data. It's, you know... Don't know. They don't know why it works. No. But they can't admit that. No. So they, had, so they attach these sort of um, analogies to these functions mm. to sort of demystify it and make it seem as that they know what the fuck they're talking about. And mm. they really don't. They don't know what animates it, no. what makes the ribosome do its job. Nope. They've no fucking idea. And well, I mean, <laughs> like what we just touched upon before, in you know, vibrations, man, and, you know, the whole idea of um, where made of atoms and it's just allegedly electricity that holds it all together but you know a neutron can be in two different places at the same time and all these kinds of atoms make different kinds of elements which make up a body but then how does that then turn into consciousness yeah it's insane when you think about it i mean how many people do you think really think about that concept Five? <coughs> I don't know. Five, ten percent. Ten percent best. 
No? I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking about the people who I bump into on a day-to-day basis. Mm. Uh, I mean, you know, you can make excuses and say, well, they're busy. They've got a lot on. We're distracted from all this stuff. Mm. We're not encouraged to think about these things. No. Um, Just consume. Consume (laughs) consume the next Disney product. (laughs) (laughs) But these these sort of enigmas are what interests me. That's what makes life interesting, because there's a mystery there. Yeah. We don't really know why it works. We've got a good idea of how it works, Mm. but we don't know why. What animates it, you know? This is where he's getting to with the DNA theory that, that this DNA is is sort of the the animator. It's the reason why things happen. But this is the other thing as well: is that there's a there's a comparison made depending dependent on the technology that's available to the civilization at that time. Uh-huh. So before computers, the brain was compared to a steam engine it's the engine for your mind or whatever before that who know it was your soul wasn't it i imagine um or something else maybe don't really know my early psychology and that's the other thing about psychology is it's weird in terms of how it was moved away from philosophy how do you mean moved away from so, like, when I, th- when I think of, like, I don't really know much about, like, Descartes and, you know, all the other... Is it... I want to say, is it Jane? No, not Henry James. He's, like, Victorian, I think, early 1900s. Um, but it's, it, it, he talks about, you know, the, that's where that mind and body separation comes in, basically. So your mind is separate from your body, you know. So you have this mind. It's not your soul. And, and that kind of thing is my understanding of it. That might be completely wrong, but it's all that's a philosophy. Mm. So, and that's a little bit. I'm reading. I'm, I've read a lot more of the archetypes and the collective unconscious. It's this Carl Jung. Mm. So you'll love this book, and you'll know a lot of what he's talking about. All the different kinds of myths and stuff. But he kind of argues that this is innate. We have all these archetypes, but it's not... We don't learn them. They are past. It's just there in your unconscious, essentially. Where does it come from? Do you you get sort of passed it down from your parents, your archetypes, or can you choose... Everybody has them. (coughs) Everyone has all of them, Mm. or everyone is based on one? I think what I'm kind of... I'm only like halfway through, but the more I read, the more... Um, it seems that it's it, they're all there, but you're not aware of them essentially. But the, the things that he picks out. So the one I'm reading about at the moment is the child archetype, and there's loads of archetypes around the child, and you know the child god, and and it's you know it's repeated over and over again through myth and religion and all the rest of it. Like a child is born, and it's going to be you know a king or whatever and then it goes through all these different stages and then there's like he talks about the child and like transformations and all this other stuff and he talks about magic in it and you know rituals and things like that and he talks about religion and you know how 
well, Christianity and, you know, it's magic when you go and you have the body and blood of Christ or whatever, you know. It's a ritual. Mm. Well, yeah, but it's the magic. He's trans- transforming that from wine into blood and right. bread into flesh. Yes. Who am I to argue? Okay, you know, it's something I need to do. I've heard so many people, you know, wax lyrically about Carl Jung. It's like, I'm missing a beat here. Um, I need well, to make a make well, he, concerted he, effort. He is very disparaging of rationalism and I think materialism and all that. And he sort of decries or denounces, you know, this move away from religion and to kind of uh, a materialist... Materialist, atheistic... Yeah, society. ...worldview. Um, And he started talking a a lot about Zarathustra. What is it called? Is it a novel, that? The spoke Zarathustra, Mm. Nietzsche. Mm. Well, I mean, it's it's a novel, but it's philosophy. Yeah, but it's like it's, it's layered with meaning. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. So there's an ass festival at the end. An ass festival. Yeah. Well, that <laughs> that sounds interesting. Yeah, read it. It's good. Um, so yeah, I think I might re- read some Nietzsche after reading this book. But I've got, I've got loads of books I've not read. Um, but it's it. Even though I don't really understand a lot of it, I think uh, doing this podcast has made me better able to understand some of it. Yeah. It's like a it's like a drip feed. Mm-hmm. It's like um, <laughs> like a, like the f- I the first sort of esoteric book I read was Hamlet's Mill, Ooh. and it's like the fucking one of the hardest. Yeah, you know. So you read it, and you, you might recognize a couple of things, but then you read the next book, mm. and the next, and the next, and the next, and before you start tying things and ideas together as you go along, and you start to recognize more. As you go along. Well, this is the thing. And this is um, a, l- a large part of the job that I do. It's like pattern recognition, basically. Yeah. And I've se- I-, I can't remember who, I've, who I saw. Um, I think I was reading something about a doctor. Dr. Fox. Maybe. Dr. Doom. Yeah. And he was saying that, you know, just being a, med- just being a medical doctor is that that's why they're all separate. So that's unfortunately why it's, you know, there's an ENT and, uh, you know, a... Surgeon? Well, you know, so it's like an osteopathic surgeon or a a renal specialist or there's a a lung. (laughs) We're hyper-specialised in all scientific fields. But there's a reason for that in that it's in... Probably wouldn't be impossible, but it'd be very difficult for a doctor to then recognise all the patterns with all the different disorders to do with the lungs, the kidneys, his nose, and assuming this doctor hasn't had a few ayahuasca trips, (laughs) exactly, and can't just you know see it, yeah, Um, speak to the serpents. mm. (laughs) So it is. It basically just becomes. Oh right, okay, you're exhibiting these (coughs) symptoms that's associated with this disorder, essentially. So that's what they were saying, and that's essentially what I do. So the more you speak to people over and over again, the more you can pick out, ah, right, okay, about um, 
different. Oh, and that's resources. it's developing expertise. Mm. So it goes across anything. It's the ten thousand hour rule. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it can be applied to different things. But you made uh, a good point about the esoteric stuff, in that <laughs> you can't just read a book and pick up all the meanings. You need it's it's a wide breadth of subject. Have you ever gone back to one of your books? No, it's like I remember. I'm sure I was reading Hamlet's Mill when we did the podcast mm. right at the beginning. Mm. And I remember vividly saying something like, it's one of these I'm going to have to read again in 20 years. Mm. And maybe I'll understand 10% of it rather mm. than five, you know. Mm. So it's one of them. But, you, yeah, you pick up these sort of strands that go through different areas. Mm. And you start um, synthesizing different things yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. Um. Connecting dots is what conspiracy theorists call it. Yeah, but the other, the other thing that's interesting about Jung and this archetype thing and, you know, these different... You know what uh, a child is, mm-hmm. don't you? And it, there's an argument... To be, but this is... Uh, his argument is that you just know that. And, it, you know, as you go through life certain parts of it are revealed to you um but he he does also talk about um the primitive mind and he he's quite dis uh, this is what i'm a bit confused about is whether he's being disparaging about primitives and he i can't remember if there's a specific line in the book so this is the other thing about this archetypes book it's not I don't think it's something that he's necessarily... He's not written it himself. I think, from what I can gather, it's it's a collected volume of essays. Right. Um, Actually, no, he does say uh, this is from a... uh, off (laughs) Fucking mad. One one of the chapters is, oh, yeah, this was like an off-the-cuff lecture I gave and... It was a the the notes are taken from a stenographer, and it's like you know fifty pages around. I think it's about the child introduction to the child archetype, and I just think where the fuck has all this come from? Well, uh, I read the Fourth Way by um, was it Uspensky? It was a fucking slog, and that is all lecture notes. It's yeah. all spoken word taken mm. down. All mm. it's five hundred pages of it. But I think it's been collated towards the end of his life. This. Yeah. So it's, I think it's first, you know, put together in like the 60s maybe or 50s or 60s. I think he died in the 60s. Um, maybe the 70s, I don't know. Um, I think it was his 90s when he died. Um, but it it all goes back. This is the other thing I think well, that uh, that you miss a lot of in um, state school, you know, from our education, which is different, which I seem to get is a very from private school and, you know, maybe like upper middle class people, if you're talking about it from like a, an English perspective, that they all seem to have a, a better knowledge of like um, ancient Greek. Classics. Yeah. We don't, that's just not taught, is it? No. No, Latin is a dead language. 
Well, not even that. Um, I just mean, you know, you don't have to fucking know Latin, do you? But no, no, no. I'm just saying that's the that's what I grew up he- hearing yeah. in popular culture, mm. in like uh, Asterix films or mm. TV shows when we were growing up. Latin is a dead language. Mm. I, didn't, I didn't even know what Latin was. No, uh, the Latin mass ended, I think, in the seventies. You can still go to Latin. Oh yeah, you still have him, but I, it was compulsory. So, like, our mums and dads would have had Latin masses in but their I, childhood, I, don't, I think. I don't know. You don't necessarily... Um, I don't think you need to... Necess- you probably would have a better grasp of it because I'm sure there's different nuances, isn't there, if you actually understand the Latin language. Yeah, or Greek, yeah. Or ancient Greek. Yeah, but it's it's the, the broader... That was just an example of how classical... Me saying Latin is a dead language is an example of how our culture treats the classics mm. it's dead you don't need to know about it yeah we're not going to teach that that's not going to be on the curriculum i think i think there's a value there i think also there's this kind of um it comes i, I do think it's a class thing as well in that you know if you're into classics and all that kind of stuff um that you're you're probably you you're seen in a different light aren't you imagine if you you know um, we're at high school, or high school, and you say, oh, yeah, I'm just uh, reading this mad play by Sophocles. Um, what would your mate say? I'd say, yeah, I mean, Oedipus, Oedipus Rex is just a classic, man. It's like my my favourite of the three Theban plays by far. Mm. Oedipus Rex, yeah. But then you talk about Oedipus, <laughs> don't you? And that 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 is in part of, you know, the archetypes and that kind of thing. And I think yeah. it forms part of... I think he references it in the child archetype, obviously. But um, <coughs> uh, dirty motherfucker. But that's again, that's the basis, the core part of what popular psychology comes from. Because what when you say Oedipus, you Oedipal think of Oedipal Oedipal, the Oedipus complex, don't you? And um, Freud, fuck my, obviously. Fuck my mother. Mm. So yeah, it's very. I don't know. So what we're saying that we need to bring back classical education because, right, there's two types, you see. Mm. So we're thinking about a classical education in sort of a early 20th century, 19th century context where you would learn mm. Greek and Roman history and philosophy mm. and you'd read Virgil, Virgil's yeah. Aeneid and Homer and stuff like that. But a true classical education is the seven sacred sciences, isn't it? This is, Maybe that's what we should be teaching. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? And there's a lot of... But again, our society doesn't support that. You're basically... You're put into education. You're put into it. Yes. Because, you know, for better or for worse, we live in this capitalist society. So you're programmed, for want of a better term, to... Um, achieve right so you need to do as best as you can all of the time and the ideal goal is to make loads of money buy loads of stuff um, and that will make you happy yes <laughs> Essentially, that's the kind of the message isn't it yeah um, and you know this rise of mental health um, Ill, over- Ill health <clears throat> Well, no, I think the rise of um, 
being more aware of your mental health. Right. It's, it's definitely noticeable in the last decade, I would say. That's what, I would, yeah. Would, this is the thing, is like, um, you know, we're pushing towards this, you know, achieve, 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 buy, buy, buy. But it's not making people happy. Oh, no. Because where's the, where's the, well, well, yeah, Viktor Frankl, I just gave you a book back. Where's the meaning in um, having the best car or the nicest house? Exactly. There is or, um, you know, the best computer you can buy. No, there is none. There is no meaning in it, in any of it. And the only resource, 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 we have that's finite is time. Mm -hmm. How are you going to spend that time? And you can spend all your life chasing the greenbacks, <laughs> the Benjamins. And, it, you know, it might not make you happy. There's a good chance it won't make you happy. And no one on their deathbed said, I wish I'd worked more. No. You know, it's like, uh, and uh, we're at that sort of weird age where our kids are starting to grow up now. Like my oldest is going to high school next year. And it's like... Um, it uh, pulls it into focus that like you only get this time once and how do you want to spend it? Do you want to... Uh, you've got to make the most of it. You've got to use it while it's there because before you know it, it's gone. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can regret uh, not spending enough time with your kids and uh, and doing what they want to do, even though they might be a pain in the ass sometimes. No, but, I mean, I think about this uh, every single night, actually. Yeah. Yeah, because sometimes I really don't want to read another story to my uh, son. And sometimes I really do want to read a story, but the, the nights that I don't, I just think um, on my deathbed or, you know, at the end of my life, am I going to, um, I suppose, think back and think, oh, yes, I'm really glad that I didn't read... Um, 20 pages of the BFG, for example, like tonight, uh, with my son and enjoy that time together? Or should I have just been on my phone looking endlessly at mini Clubmans that I'm probably never going to buy? <laughs> <laughs> this is what the, the materialist paradigm does, is it, is it takes your attention, mm. first and foremost, from a, away from things that, are actually meaningful. What Victor Frankl would say is meaningful. First and FOMO, you should have said then. Uh, what did I do? What did I say? I can't remember. First and foremost. FOMO, FOMO fear of missing out, that yeah. is, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I don't understand that. I, I used to get that. Um, I used to get fear of missing out on parties and nights out. Mm. Like, um, yeah, I used to. you know, when we were sort of 18 or whatever. I would, uh, I'd hate to not be able to make it to a night out or a mm. party or something because, oh, what if Horny gets fucked and bombs <laughs> on someone, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, there is a fear of that. But you're young and stupid and <laughs> your fucking brain hasn't even finished growing yet. So things change as you get older, you know? I don't have fear of missing out. The only, <laughs> I mean, I suppose the only fear of missing out I have now is of uh, sort of missing out on certain experiences i guess maybe this, i don't think there is any really sort of external 
things that I'm afraid of missing out of. I mean, I suppose, I suppose travel maybe might be one. There's certain places I'd like to visit before I creak off, you know, off this mortal coil into the next cycle. I think, um, but I, with that, I think hopefully there's a time when you'd be able to do that in that when, you know, our children or your children aren't necessarily as dependent on us. Um, you know, when they're in the teenage years, there's that time. He talks about this, and this is like a uh, a psychoanalytic term. It's like invid- individuation. When So I think I'm, I'm very rough on psychoanalysis and, you know, um, that kind of... Uh, paradigm around sort of like therapy and stuff but you know they kind of term it that your um or our kind of uh, mind is attached to our parents which you can kind of relate to and i can definitely you know see that in my kids so like my eldest is very much attached to me and the younger one at the moment is very much attached to his mum right and so there's a a point at which their minds aren't as attached to yours. Um, and it generally happens when you're a teenager, essentially. You puberty, move away. Yeah, probably, yeah, yeah, you move away and you form your own personality. So it's not yeah. your parents' personality anymore. So you, quite often that is like in the form of rebelling mm. against your parents. And then you, you come back and think, ah, oh, right, okay, now I understand why... Um, my parents were saying such and such because they actually, you know, it probably made sense to them or whatever. You can see them, you know. And that's that is when you're starting to develop your own mind, essentially, where you can think for yourself, you can see other people as wanting their own needs, you know, their personality, how that drives them. And, and, and that is a very complex thing. And that takes time to develop, essentially. And it seems that some people do that earlier and you know it probably took me until it was like in my mid-30s before i realized what you know was going on around me really i don't know it's not something i've thought about i don't really um i don't generally sort of dwell on my old psychological state in the past or my development i do really um, is that a guilt thing? It's because you think of, think about mistakes you made and, oh, if I knew what I knew then, what I knew now, I would have done this differently. Definitely, yeah. I yeah. think that's part of it. I can understand that, yeah. But I also, I, I think it's also that at the time, I, you know, I can't, I wouldn't have been able to see beyond the end of my nose, essentially. Really? Yeah, no, I just, uh, yeah. I don't know, I, I don't know if it was all kind of um, being, what's that, self-absorbed or whatever. I think it was just my own insecurities at the time essentially made me behave in a certain way. And as I kind of got older, I realised, oh, right, okay, no. Um, It's not because, you know, uh, because of how I am. It's because other people just behave in different ways. I think it was having kids that changed that. 
uh, catalyzed that? Or do, do you think you sort of came out of that before you had I think so, to a certain extent, yeah. But I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I Honestly, I've been... Th- I thought... I think I've changed a lot since I've started doing, like, the psychology stuff. Um, and definitely the therapy stuff, I think. But it's very difficult, isn't it, to look back. Um, I do think... This is... Um, so I, I take it back to... Uh, I think I've talked about this before, like the big five in terms of personality traits, OCEAN is the acronym. So openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, uh, agreeableness, and neuroticism. So those are the apparently the big five personality tra- traits. And I think <coughs> that from what I've read, it, it seems that they're supposed to be intransient, a certain extent so they don't really change yeah but i think i've become a lot more open i think the more i think about it the more i was the influence of my parents made me quite a closed person to a certain extent really and quite judgmental i think i can't believe that um sort of modern psychology would would class them as, as intransient I would think, I would imagine that like, the easiest way to do this would just be to... It might not make... be, it might not be, I might, I might be miss... All right. Uh, I might, because, you know, it's not. It's a long time since I've... I mean, an easy that. way to find out would make people to do the Big Five test and then make them do it again in 20 years. They probably so. have, they probably have. And yeah. I, I imagine, we, we, you know, basing it on one person, I imagine it does change, really. I'm, I'm sure it does. I think people change. I don't believe that leopards don't change the spots. I've definitely changed. In the last two years, never mind the last ten. Mm. No, I think we all change, and uh, I think, um, for I think it's it's later for men, as you said. I remember um, being like twenty seven, and having my eldest baby, baby on my lap like that, playing Call of Duty, playing Call of Duty while babies there. Mm. I mean. That's that's childish. That's what a juvenile would do. Mm. But I was like maybe 27 at the time. Mm. But, you know, I can't change it. That's just what happened. And um, So I think re- the realisation of becoming a father, uh, it didn't happen straight away for me. It maybe took a couple of years. Because the mother does everything. You know, the, the, she gets pregnant and does all the... You go to the classes or whatnot in the hospital or whatever, and then the baby comes and you hold the hand and get your hand crushed and the you know, whatever, push, breathe, breathe, push, whatever it is. And then even after the birth, like mother's a one in control, like mm-hmm. she does everything. You know, she's at the hospital for the first. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I think it was only maybe a couple of three nights. Maybe this she stayed in, if that, with my first. I mean, they, they get them out pretty quick. But if you, if you, if you, if your birth is say more complicated and you have to have an epidural or whatever, then mum and baby can be in hospital for a couple of weeks, three weeks mm. easily. So, yeah, when the baby first comes, I mean, you're sort of you're kind of at a loose end, really. I mean, you haven't got a lot to do. Uh, that was my experience anyway. The mother just took over and was like did everything. It wasn't until the kids became. 
bit older that you start doing nappies and there was a there was a, that was definitely my first experience but there was a we made a deliberate change in the second mm-hmm. in that um i did a lot more of like so with the second one a lot more gas and air <laughs> <laughs> for a start i think she was in hospital longer and that's a deliberate thing and i was in the i stay i could stay in we had a room where i could stay with her so we stayed in so i stayed in the room um and then it's so wild though like uh, i think about this moment a lot so both of us were there with the second one neither of us could get him to settle and then like the midwife just came in and she wrapped him up in the thing gave him like a little bit of milk like, a, of, like a shaman yeah <laughs> like out of a bottle wrapped him up in a certain way, put him down, and he just slept. And I just thought, why the fuck couldn't we just do that? <laughs> and what is that? So what is the... What's going on? So the, the, the that baby... I won't say his name, but my youngest son... Raphael. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Rebus was... Um, he could obviously sense our, I don't know. Anxiety? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, uh, yeah probably. Yeah. Stress. You know, I'm sleeping in a fucking camp bed in like this private room in the maternity ward of the hospital. <laughs> oh my fucking God. What, you know. And he'd had like boob. He'd had like the, the sweet, clear. Colostrum. Yeah. Liquid. Best. From the tit. Oh, like the and he still up. wasn't. He still wasn't going to sleep. And then, like, just, like, this random comes in. Yeah, yeah whatever, just wrap him up in a fucking towel, put him down. Yeah. Straight to sleep. What is that all about? And he's not that, you know, that's not his mum. That's not his dad. No. And he shouldn't, well, you know, you, you, you would think he would take time. It's fucking experience, man. It's like, go back to the tribe days. Mm. Yeah, this woman, this grandma... She's had four of her own kids. She's been all of her granddaughters. She's been at all the births. Mm-hmm. She knows the shit, man. And then she goes, yeah, like a midwife. I mean, how many births is a midwife? You know, someone, a midwife Thousands. who's been there for five years. Yeah. yeah, so you're hundreds, maybe a thousand births. And it, mm. that's where the experience and the expertise comes from. It's Again, it's 10,000 hour rule. Mm. And they just know, they just have, maybe there's an instinctual thing as well, mm. you know. I'm I'm not shitting on male midwives. I'm sure they're really good male midwives, but can they, you know, it seems to me that female midwives, what you want, as well as a young priest and an old priest, you want an old female midwife. As well as not the shit. An Augusti and a Caesar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that, yeah, I think about that moment a lot in that, um, not in like a, you know, I should have done better kind of way, just an interesting way, like it, it, she could just come in, do it, wrap him up, gone. And we could never swaddle any of ours in the same way. I suppose that's another skill, isn't it? Learning how to swaddle tight enough so it's not too tight. It's not, I don't know. It's wild. Absolutely. I mean, uh, this is what midwives were for. This is why we've had them forever. Yeah. You know, because the, these skills, 
<laughs> not few, no, you know, parents going to pick it up like that. You know, we've been through it. We know how daunting it is to become a parent for the first time or even the second time. You never know exactly what's going to happen. There's always a, a risk. And this is where this kind of idea of individuality comes in as well, or individual families. So it's just me and my wife primarily looking after this child. Um, my mum's like supportive and stuff, but she, you know, she's at a certain age where she can't really come round and like do the night shift or be there in the day and change yeah. nappies and all the rest. Of that. It's Fucking just, Queen of Sheba. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. she can't do that anymore, but. Again, and this is this other thing that you know kind of relates to sort of social media and our brain. And you know, one of the ideas is that we just can't cope with the amount of people that we interact with. And Dunbar's number again. Yeah. Um, you would have gone. So you know, you had your baby. You think about it. Living in a the tribe, there's no way you would have just like been gone back to your yurt. Um, and been left alone. <clears throat> there might have been like a day where you just had the baby on you or whatever, but it would you, surely it would have, you would have had like aunties, uncles, absolutely the whole family unit, the whole tribe. And this is uh, would have been welcoming the new <clears throat> baby. Like, if you think of a tribe of mm. two hundred, mm. how often is there going to be a pregnancy? One mm. a year. Mm. It's a big deal for the tribe. It's a celeb- It's important thing every every fucker in the village should be round and you know from you know the history that's bandied about now it would have been the women that would have kind of come in and uh, looked after the baby absolutely nursed it all the rest of it there may have even been wet nurses at that time as well you know yeah, other mothers that would have been in milk and at the same time so oh, i'll just do it you know mine's a bit older or whatever um, all that kind of thing, it just takes the pressure off. So think about it now, and you go home, and if you're breastfeeding, cause the, and I just don't know how women do that, just like solely breastfeed a child 24 hours, you just go insane doing that. That is so much pressure. And like the tiredness and all the rest of it. <coughs> I mean, it's not. I mean, from it starts off like that, where it's every hour or every two hours, and then it tails off. Yeah, but after weeks and months. Well, it, it depends. They're all different, but they, they all sort of build a routine, don't they? Where they have to the, start sleeping, mm. and they, they can't feed when yeah, they're and sleeping. It, and it, yeah, and it eventually gets longer and longer yeah. and longer. Yeah, but if you if you're not built. If you're born, this is you know, high neuroticism, um, a, a trait, trait neuroticism, high. You're never going to be able to sleep basically whilst you're doing that alone. So, the tribe would have known that, yeah, and made adjustments and took the weight off. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I'm all for it. I'm all for going back to tribal living. It's well, like uh, this is. I'm not say right. It's a very dangerous thing. I'm not comparing certain cultures with a tribe, but there are certain cultures cultures in Britain today where um, more than one family unit, 
not a family, no, a, a larger family family unit lives in one house. Oh yeah. So there's like, uh, uh, you know, maybe two or three grandmothers, aunties, um, uncles, and they can all help yep. essentially. So if you live in a household where there's Instead of, you know, like it was originally with those three or four. So, like, two parents and and two children, which is just mental, really, isn't it? Yep. Um, you've got, like, aunties and uncles who can do this. Oh, no, I'll just take the baby. You go and sleep for a couple of hours, um, pump some shit out or whatever. That is, uh, for a lot of reasons... Um, so much more beneficial, I would say. It obviously has, you know... Optimal, Jordan Peterson would say. <laughs> well, it has... It has... There are, uh, You know, and the argument against that would be that in in certain cultures, it's a patriarchal kind of thing. So, like, you know, there's a head of the family or whatever, and it tends to be a man. Not but, when it comes to the kids and babies. Well, no, but... I would say. But, you know, that's the argument against. I'm just saying it. Oh, yeah, I, I, I know. We're, we're all aware of the arguments against. But mm. when it comes to babies, I'm sorry, but the, the matriarch is going to say, fucking put a sock in it. I know what's going on with the babies. Mm. You fuck off to a pub or something. Well, basically, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, again, it, just going back 50 years, it was probably more likely that you would have a grandma at least living with you. Ooh. Or, you know, someone else in the household. Um, this is a common sort of uh, trope. It's probably the wrong word, but a line of thinking. Um, it, it's that communities raise kids. Yeah. That's how it used to be. Yeah. You know, uh, our communities are... Frag- we don't have communities anymore. No. And they're fragmented. Um, a lot of that's to do with uh, economic inequalities. So um, we grew up in we grew up in a, an old cotton town yeah. that did very well in the Victorian era because we had a, we have these huge cotton mills and that's where all the money was made. The British Empire's number one export was clothes, and uh, sort of in the seventies, wasn't it? All our manufacturing sort of flitted away, went went to other countries that could do it cheaper. And so we lost a lot of jobs. And it wasn't just the cotton industry in Lancashire. I mean, we're talking coal mining, steel in Sheffield in the northeast. You know, we lost a lot of industrial jobs. I have fucking no idea how this is related to what we're talking about, family family units and stuff. Well, I do. <clears throat> you caught my drift. Well, I can tell you, if you like. Well, when people lived in or worked in a cotton mill... What houses did he live in? Two up, two downs, probably. Terraced. Terraced yeah. houses, we would call them, wouldn't we? A terraced house. Which is a foreign concept to people in America, I believe. Is it? Yeah, you can't... I don't think the... Un, well, maybe I'm uh, presupposing, if that's the right term, what they understand. But when we say terraced houses in the UK, what that means is lines of houses... So you would have a street with, like, say, 50 houses on it, and uh, each side of the road would have 25 houses, basically, and in the, obviously in the middle would be a road, which is about, what, 12 foot across? No, more. 
bit more, yeah. Go on. 16 foot across. So you would know your neighbour, you'd be able to hear him through the walls, um, you know, and people, kids would play in the streets. Um, so you would get to know each other's children, all the rest of it. Ah, oh, right, she's had a baby, they've had a baby, whatever. Da, 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 da. And I'm not, again, I'm not glorifying or what's the word, kind of um, yeah, glorifying, I guess. Lionizing, yeah, that kind of living because um, they were, they were called slums and they were knocked down for a reason. Um, a lot of those terrace housing, and then they started putting people in high rise flats, and it got rid of that, and it became people were in units, and it became, you know, you shut your door in your flat, mm. and then that was it, basically. When we're talking about, you know, that's largely council housing, isn't it? <coughs> but I, our town centre was raised. And um, so, like, all the way into our town centre where that um, dual carriageway is now that runs through the ring road, that runs through the middle of it, it was all terraced housing. And people lived there and they knocked it all down, built the fucking dual carriageway. And then built high rises and put people in them, essentially. And that's, you know, what they did in London to a large extent as well. Um, <clears throat> but it got rid of this community, essentially. Yeah. And because you have rich areas and poor areas, uh, kids, when they get educated, they want to follow the money. So mm -hmm. you have a fragmentation of family as well, mm -hmm. geographically. So it's instead of living in the same house, you don't even live in the same city or the same county. You know, how many people do we know who moved to Manchester or London or mm -hmm. Sheffield or Newcastle to get a job? And so you're living 100 miles away from your parents mm. and then you have a child. Mm. And then you've zero support network then. Mm -hmm. And the gun. Uh, parents miss out as well so mm. they're not getting that that contact but it, it's sort of a, it's just the way the system works well it's more fragmented do you know where boxing day comes no from? where's boxing day come from now so this is linked to the, what i was talking <gasps> about it's not unrelated so this is uh an argument against you know like terrace house at that time you know this is the the, the bad side of it in that so Boxing Day apparently comes from when rich people would box up gifts and give them to, like, the poor or whatever. So that is, a, to my mind, again, we're thinking about the, the History of Rome podcast, mm. um, when Saturnalia, you would swap around and you would give, you know, the uh, the the, uh, the Senate, whatever they call, what would they call it? The, the, Senators? The uh, S... Sounds a little bit like when you ride a horse. Oh gosh, um, yeah, the, equest the equestrians. equestrians yeah. yeah, the equestrian class, the business class, businessmen would swap around, wouldn't they, with the slaves for the day? But anyway, so the, yeah, that was quite interesting. In that on Boxing Day, basically, what they were saying when that first came around, I can't remember when it was, probably in the Victorian age. Um, being at home, it, it wasn't very nice. 
being at home. So you went to go and watch football, essentially. Sorry, it was, it was talking about boxing. That's why. Why did he play uh, football on Boxing Day when all the rest uh, of the world doesn't? That's what I And he was saying, um, because being in your house with like six kids, uh, you know, with two up, two down, wasn't a very nice place. So you would just go to the pub because it would be warm and you could drink beer um, and it would be a nicer environment, essentially. Wow. I didn't know that's where Boxing Day came from. Well, I think everything would have... Sh- That's the other thing as well around Christmas is it's been shortened. Well, I imagine it's got longer and shorter over the, the centuries, but everything shut down for 12 days, and now it doesn't. So you had your, like, your 12 days at Christmas, and you had your um, summer holidays in here for a week. You had your town holidays or whatever. Everybody had Public holiday. Same, yeah, at the same yeah. time. What's it called? What's the what is it? Where 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 begins with a where doesn't it? Whitsuntide. Yep. And it shut down. Yeah. But uh, you know that's lost revenue, man. Needs to get them open. That's it now. So even now in the UK, at least I'm sure it's the same everywhere else. Is like certain shops are open Christmas Day really? under a certain floor size. Right. It's like spas open for short hours, isn't it? Well, I mean, to be fair, you know, if you're um, if you're Hindu mm. and you have an off license, a small off license, maybe you should be allowed. You know, I don't, I don't think. No, no, no yeah, I'm not mm. necessarily um, criticizing it. It's just an interesting. Everything's flip flopped, and I don't know. It's just I'm questioning everything. <laughs> As to the purpose of it and why. Yeah. Why do we have Christmas? It's like um, some people call it Saturnalia, Happy Saturnalia. Some call it uh, Yuletide. Mm-hmm. Yuletide uh, um, seems to be a favourable one at the moment. People who don't want to attach to sort of the religious... They want to mark the occasion and the season, the season changing, and we're going into a new year and all that. It's just called the festive season. Or the holidays. Yeah. Well, yeah, in America they say happy holidays, don't they? Well, they say in the service that I work in now. Oh, right, yeah, because we can't say Merry Christmas because that's to do with Christ. And some people and do. we're an inclusive service. No, I think you can say it. <laughs> yeah, not for much longer, though, come on. They'll soon ban it. You'll have to say happy holidays. <laughs> I think it's encouraged to say it, but I say... Yeah. it. I don't know. I, I Oh, you know... Being a, I would say different things to, to different people because the idea of a therapist is that you um, change the way you interact with people depending on their it's presentation. Really? Yeah. So, <coughs> is your is it? Are you supposed to act like a foil? Act like a what? The foil. What do you mean? Like the the anti, you know, if someone comes in hyper and negative, then you're relaxed and positive. I think I'm relaxed. No, I, I don't think you change I'm... it to each. You tailor it to each. No, like see, person. You, yeah, you, you try and tailor it, but it's not. Um, it's not hardcore acting. See, I'd I'd be I'd be better. At, you know, 
It was down to pure acting skills. I'm a bit <laughs> I'm Only a bit if sh- you're trying to be a South African. I'm a bit shit at the theory. But I've got the delivery down. No, I think if you're... you, So, I quite often talk about this. You've got to... Reach for the star. You've got to make someone buy into it, basically. All right. And make... Not make them believe, but allow them to believe. It's like a common thing that people go into it thinking... Uh, this is like voodoo. <laughs> it's not going to work. Yeah. Really? Why? Because it's free. Right. So you've got to think. So if something's available for, for, for nothing... But it's not free. We pay for it. Yeah, but... <laughs> it's not free. Okay, so... It's free at the point of access. So that's another question, isn't right. it? It's separate from it. But they could... How, right, so that was touched upon before in terms of... How many people realise it's free? Or not free, I should say. So how many people do you, do you think really realise that it's not free? The higher, higher. It's 50%. Less. But, but you're saying, but from your client's point of view, they consider it free because it's not costing them. Yes. Right. So it's free. Yep. Um, and that brings, I think that brings a certain belief into it. It's free to me. Obviously, it's paid for. To certain people, some people... Oh, yeah. I'd say it was 50-50, actually, like you say. It's free to me, so it must be shit. It mustn't work. Well, and the other thing is, is why is that person there? Right. So, I know nothing about it, but I would imagine um, some people are there on court orders. No. No. Well, no. And, this is not and the judge we say. wouldn't see them. Oh, it's a separate thing. Because you hear about the judge saying, uh, you know, for the parole, a condition of your parole is you go to so many whatever. And they would see someone, in someone the, else at the probation. So right. Hopefully. And if they came to us, we'd say, no, this is not the place for you. Right. All right. So if they admitted that, I should say. So what's the question? <laughs> why are they there? Why, why people come? Oh, right. Because we're assuming that half of them don't believe it's going to work anyway. Mm. What's compelling them to go? Exactly. Well, I don't know. I don't know how the system works. Someone's, it... to- someone's told them to go. Oh, who? Who? Conan. <laughs> <laughs> who do you think? Who would? Who? Who is significant in your life? Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, a, a spouse. Yeah. So. All oh, right. So it's a spouse. My wife's told me to come. I've got these issues, apparently. <laughs> right. Not open. Who's not open? The person I'm talking to quite often. Right. I'm here because my wife says this, or my partner says this, right. or my GP said I should come. Quite often, the place that I work in, um, <laughs> which is wild, got this mad, should I name the country where they, there's a lot of people that where they come from. Well, yeah. That's... Okay, so in the borough that I work in, France, uh, no. there's loads of people from Bangladesh, right? Mm. And they don't have a term for therapy. It's not in Bengali. It's not in the lexicon. It's not in. It's not a, a known concept. Therapy. No. Oh. So they go and they obviously have 
They're obviously anxious, obviously depressed, obviously traumatized. So, you know, potentially PTSD. Um, but they have no concept. I wish I hadn't said they, but I wish, you know. <coughs> we know what you mean. Gosh. But, um, they have, it, like you say, there's literally no words. So mm. I work with interpreters loads now and they have to explain what a counseling means and it's not count and this that's the other thing is like cbt's not counseling there's so it's like it's so nuanced it's and it, that is so difficult well, it's when not, it's like, not it, counseling it's therapy but so they don't have a word for it <laughs> so if i'm talking to like a 60 year old bengali guy who's come over because say for example um, this is a quite an often story. He's a politician in Bangladesh. He's come over for a, a wedding because there's loads of his family that live in, in London. No. Yeah, and um, whilst he's been away, people have come round to his house and set fire to it. So he's claiming political asylum and. He's anxious and depressed because of that. My first argument is, which is I always say to them, is that's a totally natural response. You, you shouldn't be pathologized for that. Um, it's normal to be anxious. It's normal to be sad, essentially, depressed about that. That's a normal human experience. Response, yeah. um, and then... <laughs> then the guy has no idea what counselling is. Where do you go from that? Maybe you have to ignore the fact that he doesn't understand what counselling means and just do it. Or start mm. talking. I don't think it matters. I met... So I met this... Well, I say I met... Well, I did. I, I spoke to him on Teams. Um, this guy from Afghanistan. And he worked for an NGO. And he was... He was I thought, when I met this guy, I thought, I have no chance. Absolutely no chance in helping this guy, right? He'd, um, so it was, so the whole regime thing collapsed. They withdrew, didn't they, at the end of 2021? Yeah, Biden. Helicopter going off the embassy. So they pulled them all out. Inflatable he planes. Ha <laughs> he happened to be, at the exact time, he happened to be in London in bus on business. Right. He got a phone call from his wife saying the Taliban had been to the house, said, um, where's your husband? Durka, Durka. We need to arrest him or whatever. Mohammed Jihad. Um, I like how you're trivializing it. Um, <laughs> he, and then he said, uh, obviously I, d I don't want to go home. I've already been tortured by the Taliban. Um, and I can't remember, it was probably like 20 years ago or something like that. Yeah, it must have been, yeah, 20 years ago. And then, like, the Americans came in. Yep. And then um, he said, like, I set up this NGO. I was, like, this, like, main guy in the place that I lived in. Um, he wasn't religious at all. Um, I, I probably, yeah, I'm calling him secular or whatever. Um and basically, like, 
his wife was in Afghanistan. His daughter was in Afghanistan. He had a son that lived in London. And I thought, there's just no way that any of the things I'm going to talk to you about are going to help you at all. Um, but anyway, we started doing some stuff. And he was li- <laughs> fucking living in one of these, you know, the, uh, um, again, I don't my words fail me, but um, <coughs> that are kind of demonized <coughs> in the Daily Mail asylum hotels where the government's paying like, um, and it was like near an airport and just living in this fucking hotel. You get paid, you get, I think you get like 30 quid a month to live off. But to be fair, to be fair or whatever, um, you, you, um, you get your food and you, yeah, you know, three you squares, whatever. And roof over your head. Whilst the assess your claim. Um, and I just said to him, I said, but you, you could still, and I said, he had his laptop and whatever, and, he was, and he's, the, the, the NGO that he worked for was based in Holland. And I said, well, you could still work, couldn't you? You know, I don't want to do it because I can't. So he was like a quite a principled guy. He was in his late 60s. Um, and he had, <laughs> he had like all these medical issues as well. He had this issue where fluid goes into your scrotum. In, into your so his ball sack would swell, and I looked it up afterwards, and I thought, "Fuck me, it can like to like ten times the size." So it's like wow. carrying around a football between your legs. Wow, I know. And, it, and then when it swells, and as the, well. do you know how they cure, how, how they fix it? At drainage, exactly. Yeah, drain with the syringe. Yeah, over and over again. Yeah, that's not. I've had my knee drained a few times, and it's not pleasant. No, so. There was all of that on in the background. And I just thought, and he had diabetes. He had something else. Da, 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 da. And I just thought, fucking hell, there's just nothing I can do here. You're in a shit. It's like there's this term called SLS. That's the acronym. It sounds like Scientology. It's called shit life syndrome. All oh, right. So, and you know, we've talked. I think off air maybe that a lot of depression is probably down to shit life syndrome. In that, a lot of, you know. A lot, people, a lot of people live unfulfilling lives. Yeah, and there's only or, so much of that you can take. Or you've, you know, you're abused as a child, uh, physically or sexually or emotionally, and then, unfortunately, that kind of experience in childhood leads you to me- form, and this is what the research says to a, a large extent, form unhealthy relationships when you're older. Mm. Um, and then that... Um, you know, then causes his own issues, obviously, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm not saying um, that shit life syndrome is self-inflicted. No. There are external factors and there are internal factors. There's always a way out. There's yeah, it's always... very difficult to make those changes. Absolutely, yeah, depending on what hand you were dealt. I mean, but there are people who were dealt a, dealt a really shit hand and done really well, and there are people who've been dealt, dealt a very good hand and done very shit. So it's nature and nurture, isn't it? You, yeah. you can't help the hand you dealt with, but you can change how you react to it. But with this guy, I just did very basic stuff. You know, we didn't... And when I talk about basic stuff, it's, it's like in CBT language. 
they even touched like you know what his beliefs about himself it was all very behavioral and there's a load of research around changing your behaviors and how that changes your beliefs about yourself and all your thoughts and all the rest of it what was his his chi situation well uh you know and may that's probably you, why you have to milk him <laughs> that's why helen has probably failed her driving test because i, I, I might may have siphoned off some chi <laughs> in august for this guy right. he needed it yeah he did and um just basic shit around um basically my idea was he'd been a community leader in afghanistan done loads of stuff for the community people you come for him for loans Yada yada yada. So it was a position of status. So basically, what he needed to do was be a position in a position of um, status is the wrong word. Security? No. Um, giving, essentially, it seems what he did in Afghanistan. And I said, right, that's what he. I didn't say that to him. What I led him to in my mind was you just need to start doing that in this hotel basically and is that what he did he started to do it himself but the thing about him was and that's the thing where shit life syndrome comes into it in that i don't know much about his childhood but he said um it was okay there was no issues um and it seems that he if he'd created that kind of life already in afghanistan where he was a community leader or whatever that those skills were there, they were just kind of dormant, essentially. And only been dormant for eight months, not like a decade or whatever. So it was easier to get him into a place where he could start, just start doing that again. The beliefs were there. I've done this before. I'm 68. I know what I'm doing. I've done this for decades. Yada, yada, yada. Whereas if you get someone who's 40... And they've had 40 years, you know, 16 years being in, you know, abused by the parents, 20 years of being in an abusive relationship or a series of abusive relationships. That will make you have diff a different set of beliefs about yourself, the world and the future as compared to this guy, essentially. Yeah, I can imagine that. I found it interesting um when you were learning about this guy, that your your initial reaction was, well, I can't help this guy. No, yeah. And um, what I think we're missing in our current civilization paradigm is conversation. We don't talk to each other. And I think just by just through the action of talking to the guy could be helpful. You yeah. think about how fragmented our lives are and um, how much time we spend on devices or in front of screens or checking emails or whatnot. Uh, I think that's a, that's a key. I think uh, even just talking... Because I, I, mean, I remember when we started doing this five years ago and it was a fucking novelty mm. because um, we wouldn't normally talk... We don't talk to each other during the week. You know, I don't talk to my brother during the week. I don't talk to my mum during the week other than, you know, an odd hello goodbye sort of thing you don't have conversations i mean you don't spot speak for 30 or minutes or 60 minutes and i think that was a, a novelty when we started doing this that um 
that was something that was missing. Mm. And I think there's a value there. Probably psychological. I think there's some there must be some psychological value in having long conversations with people that you care about. There must be. Otherwise, why would we That's the basis of therapy. Well, yeah, and it's a it's only recently been lost. You know, only a few couple of generations maybe that it's sort of slowly tapered off. So I think uh, even even just by talking to the guy for an hour, if, it's, if say you get an hour session a week, just that one hour a week of talking to someone can be therapeutic, even if it's not even intended to be. Just mute me a second. He's uh, doing a horrible greenie. I'm sorry. It's just all, it's got very thick mucus. Um, yes, and that's evidenced. So is it? It's in the literature, is it? So just talking can pr- provide therapeutic gain. It can make you feel better. Right. And it's, uh, the term, in inverted commas, is offloading. Oh, right. So that, that's a familiar concept to me. Where I mean, that's not what we're doing. To me, that's someone who's gone too far. They've not been speaking enough, and then they've got all this shit in their head, and they're having to uh, and offload it onto someone. Someone, please listen to me while I offload this fucking shit that's going wrong. I mean, that's a sign to me that it's gone too far. That if maybe this person was talking to a sister or a mother or an auntie on a weekly basis for an hour, it maybe wouldn't get to that point where... Oh, she has this massive offloading moment. Quite often, people, and again, this probably comes back to the ocean, that, that people, for a variety of reasons, don't do that. They refuse to talk? And also, maybe how people react to them as well. Right. So when they start to offload or talk about their insecurities or talk about whatever they say, you know, so, you know, the classic thing in British culture is stiff upper lip. So, you know, just carry on. You'll be all right. No, no, it's not an issue. That Yeah, you'll be all right, mate. Yeah, whatever. So, um, just being felt, listened to is very therapeutic in itself, essentially. I would imagine so, because this would have been... Uh, this would have been the common situation for most of our development, our human development, mm. that we would have, because there was nothing else. No. There was nothing else to do. So you would have talked, you would have sung songs, you would have mm. had feasts, you would have um, celebrated together, because there was nothing else to do. This is why it's, to me, I think this is where a lot of our, well, you know, you're saying we're becoming more aware of mental health over the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that m- mental health overall is declining, that people are... Seems that way, doesn't it? Well, I don't know. I have nothing to back it up. That's just the feeling that I get. Is that's that, what the stats say, doesn't right, it? Well, I would believe it. And uh, I think it's because we're more we're more fragmented and we have less meaningful relationships. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, we've 
It's interesting you talk about this sort of multi-generational household thing. I think there's something in that, definitely. Yeah. Um, and it, But it, like you said, it extends beyond that. You have a community. So you'll have a, a group of six families mm. who live in a small village. Yeah. You know, tribe, to me, is not a derogatory term. I know no. Stanford think it is, and they've taken it out of their lexicon mm. as of last week. Uh, I think it's a legitimate word to use, and that, like, Oh, I recognise, yeah, that guy, um, he's the cousin of my niece. And, you know, we know his family tree. I remember his uncle. You know, his uncle used to put me on his knee at, at Saturnalia. <laughs> you know, whatever. And finger me. <laughs> <coughs> there's a sort of, a, there's a, I think we're missing, we're definitely, there's a, a loss in missing out on that larger network, that extended familial friend network that has completely been wiped out in Western society. And, um, you know, it's, we, we have the point now where, you know, uh, parents in their 30s and 40s, they live in a 100 miles away from their family network and then, then they have to rely on uh, childminders and nannies and, and all the rest of it. And, and while they may be able to financially um, do that... They're still missing out, and the other family is missing out. Like the network's missing mm. out, the grandparents are missing out, mm. and uh, it comes down to values. Like you can't put a, you you have to decide what the value of that is. I think it's important as well that your children are um, influenced or exposed to different ways of thinking or just different ways of behaving. So it's like, um, so like leaving your kids with like an auntie or an uncle or whatever, they will have very different or maybe similar kind of rules for living in their house, you know, what you can and can't get away with. And it's really important for attachment as well. So, you know, if you can form an attachment with another caregiver rather than just your parents, um, so you know that the world is safe, essentially. So when you start that process of in individuation, you know, in psychoanalysis, that actually, oh, right, okay, so it's not just... I, I can also be comfortable... It's possible for me to build a relationship with another person rather than just with my parents, essentially. But again, that brings you back. But this is the thing that, that I'm just exposed to, not just, but um, a lot of people that I talk to wouldn't necessarily have had that experience, that formative experience with uh, the primary caregiver where it's, you know, <laughs> a good one, essentially. And that's what essentially fucks you up a lot of the time. In childhood. Yeah, loads yeah. loads of stuff comes back to childhood. I don't believe That's it. That's why it's so... I, I, sort of, I don't sort of buy the Gabor Mate philosophy that it all comes down to trauma. And uh, he, he's, he's sort of an extreme environmentalist when it comes to environment versus nature uh, versus inherit mm. inheritance. You know, he's sort of an extreme... That were the blank slate, you know. Everyone's the blank slate, and it's it's, it's your childhood and your experiences that mould everything. I think that there's, there's yeah, but this is the a thing. Bit simplistic, I think. I think I mentioned this to you. I don't know if I said it on the podcast. Is that 
a lot of these psychological theories and people who promote them and who get successful at promoting them, it comes from their own experiences. So like Freud, so like Gabor Mate, so like Jordan Peterson, so like Jung. Um, Jung seems to be... That's the that's the interesting thing that I'm sort of understanding about Jung is that his... his um, I looked at his um, model of the psyche and it's fucking wild. There's so many influences he's got in it. It's like, I think it's like 10. So it's not like... Nature and nurture. Yeah, it's not like, you know, he's got the collective unconscious, he's got the shadow, and that's the only two I can remember, and he's got the, id, the ego and whatever. Um, <coughs> and that, is, to me is probably more realistic than saying, you know, your childhood, that makes beliefs, da 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 There's all these other things that... So, like, CBT's based on... Um, and CBT's not... It's called CBT, but it's basically a, a, an amalgamation of lots of psychological theory, and it takes influence from psychoanalysis as well. But basically, a, a really simple Beckian, that's the guy, he's called Aaron... He's, he's, he's called Tim, but his middle name's Tempkin. <laughs> T-E-M-K-I-N. Beck. Um, and and this is and it simplifies things, and it makes it more understandable. So essentially, you have negative childhood experiences, so they could be anything. They um, form core beliefs or beliefs about yourself or the world or the future or um, other people. And then that influences certain rules or assumptions that you make about the world. And then that influences how you deal with things, essentially. Right. It's really simple. And, it, and that's <coughs> a really useful way to kind of formulate things for most people. But <laughs> that doesn't take into account, you know, um, the shadow self... Well, it does actually. The shadow self is a little bit like, um, and that was. This is getting really sort of technical, and it, if you don't know about it, it's probably a bit difficult to understand. But basically, Jung was talking about uh, archetypes. It's either one or the other, essentially. It's nothing in between, and that's what you would do with a core belief, essentially. So, uh, you know, if you're a core, you can have a really common core belief is I'm not good enough or I'm unworthy, or something like that. Or like, um, I'm weird, or I'm ugly. It's an I am statement, essentially. But at the other end, unless your childhood has been particularly horrific, there are certain experiences that would have formed a belief that you're competent, or you're you're good enough, or, you know, you're... Adequate, I get. Yeah, <laughs> essentially. Well, yeah, but that this is the other thing as well, is that... Uh, which is something that I, it brought to my mind before. It's equally unrealistic to think that you're excellent. It's equally unrealistic to say that in every situation that you are good enough because you're not going to be. So it's about being realistic, yes. essentially. It's somewhere in the middle. So taking account of the fact that it is possible for you to be in certain situations for someone to not find you attractive. But in other situations... Rare. that people will find you attractive or people will find something in you that they would like or 
people won't like you. Because, you know, when you go through life, and I've found this, that you just have a certain aversion to certain people. Right, yeah. Have you never found that? Uh, yes. Exactly. Yeah, and, but... and, you, and I can, quite often I can, I can't say why. That I don't no, like it's it. intuition. You would call that, I would call that intuition. I've got to loop. I'll have to pause this. Absolutely delicious. This I really do enjoy this. I don't think I've ever drunk drunk. <laughs> I don't think I've drunk four on the bounce before of the Coco Wonderland beer of the year twenty twenty one. It is Coco. That's why it's Coco Wonderland. Why? Because you made it into a song. Oh fuck! Uh, yeah, Coco Wonderland. Uh. That's <clears throat> the uh, the schema. Working. That's why you're a CBT guy, you see. Well, you yeah, pick, that, you that's pick. how it would be. This is the thing. Is, oh, God. <laughs> Nobody knows what the answer is. <laughs> Nobody. Now, I, I'm, uh, I'm sort of um, neglecting philosophy and, and psychology and stuff. Well, particularly psychology. It's just sort of, um, although I know it would interest me if I started reading about it, there are just other subjects that uh, I find more interesting, so I gravitate towards them, you know. Nothing wrong like I've with read... that? No, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I just think it's a, sort of a uh, a blind spot. I just think it's a blind spot in my understanding, really. But this A lot the... of the esoteric stuff covers psychology in a broad brush well this is the thing so that's what i was going to say is that it's it's the framework that you apply to it to to psychology as a subject yeah how do you mean what do you mean what what different frameworks are there well there's loads aren't there so do you mean you're talking psychoanalyst too oh yeah so you could be psychoanalysis (laughs) it could be person well i think person-centered takes from psychoanalysis i'm not an expert on either of those I'm not an expert in CBT. Um, I, I'm like a holistic. I want. I want a holistic view. I'm not interested in narrow analyses of different areas. I'm, I'm more interested in the the broader picture. So that's why Jung takes from myth and religion, yeah. and he puts it in his framework of the psyche. Essentially, synthesize. Yeah. yeah. So he takes from it. Essentially, that sounds good. So sounds that's why. Um, so, like, you know, behaviorism would say, so like Skinner, I think I've said this a million times, said, you know, give me a boy and I'll give you an accountant or a, a lawyer or a whatever or whatever. And I could do that through um, reinforcement, essentially. He was a... <coughs> B.F. Skinner was a horrific globalist as well. He was uh, tied to the UN and uh, various different institutions, yeah. But a lot of the stuff that he... I mean, it forms the basis of therapy and uh, the stuff that he suggests is works. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can still be right and be horrible. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So that's fine. 
And that's why, you know, it went from behaviorism to cognitive psychology to social psychology to social constructivism, which is what we're up to now. Social constructivism. Mm. What's this mean? Well, you know, society creates um, us, basically. So the culture. Right. So it's so, purely external. Right. We're all victims of... Yeah. The society we live in. Yeah. I mean, it sort of... It sounds to me that that, that sort of fostering helplessness in some ways, you know, it's like a victimhood. It's all being done to me. Well, yeah, that's, that's the purely negative way. I'm, I am... Uh, very much convinced that behaviour... So, let's start at the beginning, sorry. Childhood has a a massive influence, probably the biggest influence on how um, we behave in the current time. It, well, you know, day to day. And then our behaviours influence it. The way we think about ourselves or our beliefs about ourselves influence how we behave. And there, and I also believe that there's social influences about how we behave or feel or, you know, believe things about ourselves. Right. So but it's the, not one or the other. No. It's all of it. But it's how is it weighted. Exactly. So it sounds to me that we're weighting it in, in the modern era. We're weighting it heavily on social aspects. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than the childhood or behavior. Yeah, and it probably will change again. Yeah, because there's always a backlash. Yeah. Because things are taken to the extreme. Yes. And then you realize that, you know, psychologists can't answer a question like, what is a woman? <laughs> and then there is a backlash. Because uh, as f- interesting as these different theories are, they have to conform with observed reality. mm and if you if you twist yourself into intellectual cul-de-sacs to the point where you can't answer a question such as what is a woman, then that ideology is going to die because uh, it's nonsensical. Yeah, I mean, what will well hope what generally happens? I'll start sounding like Andrew Tate in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna go off on feminists. Where's, have you got some like <laughs> Vietnamese women in that fridge? <laughs> Yeah, chopped up. Yeah, let's joke about human trafficking. <laughs> um, so there are um, there's multiple things going on all the time, and theory and science, or you know, certain experiments will evidence that essentially. But you know, there's a load of issues, you know. And we've talked about this around so difficult, really, to evidence when it's all self-report. Um, the people that you they exclude from um, fucking, you know, things that, e- that, that CBT say that's that you know um, useful for. Because you know, when I first got into this, I thought. I, I, said this before i thought all right yeah i'm gonna i'm going to learn the secret science now (laughs) 
I'm going to learn. Um, right, so you say this to a person, and this makes them feel, feel better. better. <laughs> and honestly, and and they say like, um, okay, so what you need to ask people. Basically, my first job, it was. This is what it boils down to. You've got to convince people, essentially. And this is why it's so important that you get people to buy into it, to do more, worry less, think more realistically about themselves, um, expose themselves to anxiety-provoking situations, and that will make them feel better. And it does. It's weird. It's not weird. It makes sense. It's complete. Like, it's just... CBT is, is often called... Um, the common sense approach. The thing is, it's, uh, as you alluded to, it's hard to quantify the effects. And if, if I've learned anything over the last couple of years is that even the hard sciences and the literature and the peer review <laughs> system, I mean, it's a con job. It's so easy. Even something that's quantifiable, it's so easy to manipulate the numbers and then get a press release and then get it on all the mainstream sites. That's for something that's numbers. Mm-hmm. It's numbers, but you can manipulate the numbers. That's something that's completely objective. So when you take that down to something that's subjective, yeah. but the results are subjective, like you talked about um, self-reporting, like a lot of the long COVID data, well, all of it, is self-reported. So how reliable is it? I don't know. But the same issue is with psychological uh, treatments or programs or however you want to characterize them. Like this is, you know, one of my things against Jordan Peterson is that, you know, he he always says, I go with the literature. That's, you know, that's fair enough, isn't it? He says, I'm a scientist or whatever. But that that science, that ocean is based on you know, um, personality traits from the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. And they might change. So, you know, but to be fair to him, he just, he tries to just quote the stuff that's out there and he tries to stay ahead of, not ahead, but current with. Well, you know what his argument would be. If you've got a better idea, maybe you should fucking publish it then. Maybe you should publish it. And then maybe I'll quote your peer-reviewed study. Hmm? And Gabo Marte would say (laughs) that you can literally feel the trauma wrapped around his vocal cords. I mean, um... He comes to me. This is... Sorry. He's been fucking traumatised. But but this is the thing. The thing... He's quite open, isn't he, about his difficulties around depression and all yeah. the rest of it, and you know, and it makes it. He talks glowingly about his mum, right? Yeah, and I read a blog years ago uh, before he you start touring and all the rest of it. Um, maybe when he was starting touring, so before he exploded. Um, into the mainstream um, about how upset, like, it would, like, absolutely destroy him when he thinks about his mum dying. And it may, and he doesn't, 
He talks about his dad a little bit, but not very much. So it makes me wonder about his relationship with his... Yeah, from from what I've understood from the books of his I've read and the content I've consumed, he talks about his dad as sort of a stereotypical uh, Canadian, working class, hard but fair, mm. like a standard, you know, uh, sounds fine to me. What a, f- a father probably should be. Who should? It's an interesting Ought. word. Ought. Maybe ought to be. I think the concept of what a, a dad... I think I'm very... I I think I'm very different to what my dad is with my kids. Yeah? Mm. I don't uh, know what your relationship... How so? Um, well, I say I love you. Really? Yeah. You pussy. All the time to both of them. That's good. And I hug them and all the rest of it. One of my formative memories, like my core memories of his child, is sitting on my dad's lap in front of the gas fire and him stroking my head in my, in my pajamas and him falling asleep and me falling asleep. Yeah. Um, but he never said, I love you, ever. Never mm. vocalized it. Uh, no, same for me. Same for me. And my dad's still here. Mm. Um, Have you ever told him that you love him? No. No. When you die, do you think you would regret that? No. No? And I'll tell you for why. Go on then. I think, um, and the same goes probably for your relationship with your father, uh, it doesn't need to be said. Mm. I think it's inherent... And it's... Uh, in your relationship, in how you behave. Absolutely. Um, I don't think he needs to vocalise it. I think it's well understood both ways. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, like you you mentioned that memory of your dad mm-hmm. stroking your hair. I mean, that's what it is. It's love. Yeah. You know, there's no question that your dad didn't love you. It, you're uh, we're thinking about, well, we need to hear it vocalised. I think maybe that's a modern thing. Maybe that's... Some things don't need to be said. I don't I, know. I think there's I think there's a difference in having it confirmed. <laughs> I do. For me. It could be, yeah. For me. I um, don't think it's silly. I, uh, I understand where it comes from. And maybe I will regret it if I don't implement it. Because I don't. Make a habit, like you say, uh, of saying to your kids, I don't do that. And maybe I would regret that if I didn't implement it. Um, But maybe um, my kids will get to where I am now and think, well, he didn't need to say it because because of all the things he did for us. It was inherent in his actions and the way he was with us, Mm -hmm. that he loved us. And uh, having that, that vocal... Confirmation. But I don't know. I don't know. I'm spitting shit. I don't I have no idea. You could be right. You could be right. Maybe there is something in hearing that vocalization. Maybe it depends on the person, man. It's like maybe mm-hmm. it's something that you crave and other people don't crave. Yeah. You know? I think that's probably a, a lot to do with it. I mean, even 
probably getting a little bit personal, but he, he wouldn't even say, you know, you've done well. Right. So you didn't get much positive reinforcement? No. No. Um, so my dad was like a very much, he would show. So have you ever heard of love languages? No. So I can't remember them all. The only one I know is... Take that, was it? They're Backstreet Boys. Take that mainly. 95, yeah. So After of, Robbie left. One of them is called Acts of Services. Right. So my dad did everything. He did... Uh, and it, So he would clean, he would cook, he, would, he worked like 12-hour shifts, all the rest of it, yada, yada, yada. So that could be interpreted as him... Um, being like a control freak. I'll do it because, you know, you want You're to... You're going to do a shit job. Yeah. yeah. And he probably said that, but um, that was the way that he showed that he could care for us, basically. He worked as hard as he could. When he was younger, he had two jobs, and lo- as much money as he could, so, you know, he could provide a very much different um, childhood for us than he'd had, mm. essentially. That was the basis. And that brings us back to like Boxing Day and, you know, how he's brought up, you know, four people in a bed, icicles on the inside, looking for coal on the railway lines because they didn't have enough money to buy coal, all that kind of stuff. So that's, and I think that's a bit, your dad's probably similar kind (coughs) of age, about 10 years younger, wasn't he? Slightly less in that. He was a boomer, so he was born in 46. Right. So he, my dad was born in 1938, so before the war, just before. He would have been evac then. No. No, he stayed here, didn't he? Well, Preston wasn't bombed, was it? Well, did they not evac from Preston? No, because no, he wasn't bombed. It's on the wrong side, well, wrong right of side of the country. I imagine the fuel wouldn't have lasted to get to Lancashire, basically. It wasn't bombed. They bombed Belfast. Well, they didn't bomb. North, they didn't bomb for some reason. They didn't bomb Strand Road, did they? Or was that built after the war? I don't know. Anyway, well, my granddad worked at um, English Electric on Strand Road in the war, so I don't know. Anyway, um, he wasn't evac'd. No. <laughs> um, the reasons why he wasn't evac'd, I don't know. Um, and I, yeah, well, well, there's no stories about Preston being bombed. Well, at school, you would have been taught about Preston being bombed. Liverpool was bombed to fuck, wasn't it? And Coventry. Was Sheffield bombed then? I think so, yeah. Belfast. Well, Sheffield's a famous one. Uh, sorry, Coventry's a famous one because one. of the church, isn't it, that's still there? Yeah. London? Um, and London, obviously. Um, Bristol, I think, got done. So, and that might have been down to intelligence, I don't know. Yeah. But his mentality, obviously, was very much, right, I just need to provide... Uh, and the way that his dad was, um, from it, the way that he interpreted the way that he behaved, was, right, I need to be the absolute opposite of my dad, which was his dad, the way that he explained him, he didn't do very much, he just argued and, you know, beat up his wife all the time. And then, so he was just the opposite of it. Did he work? Was he, he must have done. Well, it comes back to the other thing that I can't, I don't really want to talk about uh, that goes on in our family. 
All right, don't then. So, um, and that might have influenced how his dad behaved, which is something new that I've learned, essentially. Um, so, but yeah, and then it seems that his mum was probably a little bit mentally unstable as well, but the experiences that she had in that marriage probably would have done that, and I don't know about her childhood, so and that would have influenced it. But that would have influenced how you behave with us. And, it, and I, you know, I'm not saying that my experience with my dad was um, on the whole positive. Yeah. That's all you can ask, really. Mm. I understand um, that mindset of I want to make things better for my kids than I had. Mm. I think that's a constant. That's always been a, you know, well, that's... from my point of view, that's been a constant that, um, you know, that's thing we want we want want to make things we want our kids to have a better life than we had you know as a minimum well i suppose it you think about your childhood and think about what's miss well for me what was missing was that um for example i other than other you know it's, i'm not minimizing that um but other than like holidays growing up i didn't like there was no Dad didn't like take us to the park or anything like that, or oh. um, didn't take us to, you know, go and do things with us. He did when he kind of was coming to when I was in my mid-teens, maybe early. It's worth saying that your your dad was old, older when he had you. Forty-five. <laughs> Fucking hell! Well, I'm I'm not forty yet. Mm. I mean, that yeah. must play a role. I don't know. Have you spoken to Peter? Maybe with Peter, he did more of that sort of stuff. No. No. He he was... Um, uh, yeah. Uh, the, there are no, no formative memories that I have, like I was saying, with my dad. My dad changed. Changed? Oh. What, when you were born? So he was 45 when he had me. Yeah. And he was a very much different dad when he had Peter at the age of 32 than when he was, when he had me, let's just say that. Yeah, I I mean, I would be. I think we all change. Mm. I mean, we're talking 15 years there. Mm. How he, he was, because of the amount of stress that he invited into his life, so trying to be this all-encompassing, um, father, cooking, cleaning, working 12 hours. Um, he could get, he could lose his temper quite a lot, basically. Yeah. So when he was younger and having two jobs and first child, he was, he acted differently, basically, to what he did with me. I can imagine. I mean, you're going through it for the fourth time. You know, yeah. you're the youngest of four. It's going to change you. It's going to change your perspective. It's going to change how you react. Mm. You know, uh, it's just the way it is. People change. Well, there's no getting around that. So do you tell your kids that you love them? No. No? No, maybe I should. 
I mean, I'm sure I have done. But it would have been instigated by the little one. The little one would have said it first. Because there comes a point when they don't say it. Oh, right. Well, I mean, they don't anyway, to me. Mm. Very rarely. So this was the the difference between um, my family and my wife's family in that um, I don't, like, I don't tell, I've never told my mum since I was like a child that I love her. No. And um, I don't tell my, you know, I don't hug my sisters, I don't hug my brother, I don't tell them I love them, anything like that. No, with I, my, tell, I don't tell my wife I love them. Well, that's for different reasons. But um, <coughs> how I interact with my family is very much based on our childhood experiences. It's like acts of service because the pre- predominant influence and in how we behave was our dad, essentially. So how does that differ with your, your missus's family? It was weird. They just hug, they hugged each other. They just said, I love you all the time when they were going out. I love you, see you later, whatever. You know, it's like a nonchalant kind of thing. And like, if I can't, I think... Um, the last time I hugged my mum was when um, uh, she threw like a, a little party because I'd, I'd finished well, my degree. They're going to say a stiletto or something. She threw she threw a little party. Yeah. Because um, I'd done graduation uh, party. Yeah, at home, and everyone came round because I like the first person in the family to get a degree, and she. Um, and, I, and at the end of it, I just thought I had this over. I think I'd had like a few beers. Yes. And I said, oh, and I gave it a hug. I didn't say I love you. I just hugged it. You gave it a hug. Yeah. <laughs> right. That's a step. But I, she... I hug my mum regular, uh, fairly regularly because mm. uh, I feel like she needs it more than anything. It's not for me. Like... It's not for me. It's for her. I feel that she needs, my mum needs a hug from me, but I yeah. still don't do it. Well, that's something that you can sort out. Mm-hmm. That can be implemented. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm fascinated by your wife's um, familial attitudes. And uh, it, what th- the thing that struck me was um, you mentioned that it was almost nonchalant the way yeah. they say I love you. Does that degrade it? Does that mean that it's, it's, it's less meaningful when you're saying it every day? I think so. Do you think? Mm. I don't know. I think it might do, but um, I think it makes it more ingrained in some way. I mean, if you're if you're hearing it every day, then you're less likely to build up this neurosis of yeah. I'm unloved. Mm. So I think that's a good thing. Mm. Um, I think that sort of, we're getting a bit Hollywood when we think, oh, it's it's less meaningful because you're saying it all the time. No, I think I think that's bullshit. I think it, it means the same. It means the same uh, to your to your missus when she's talking to her brother mm. or whatever, as it as it would do to you if you were talking to your mum. It's just that they've they don't have the hang up. There's no hang up there. They can just say it. Yeah, and they all know it. Mm. But they can they can vocalize it easily. I, th- I think um, 
putting my psychology hat on, there were reasons why... Oh, a big gay one. Yeah, why <laughs> her mum would say it more. <coughs> but her dad would... And, and why her dad would say it as well from sort of issues in their kind of childhood as well. I don't think it matters where it comes from. I think there is a tendency or a temptation to overanalyze. Mm. And then and maybe it's just worth saying, I don't give a shit where it comes from. Maybe that's a good thing to do and we should implement it. Yeah. And uh, But this is the thing. This is why we're interested in our psyche and where it all comes from because we want answers. Why do we think differently? Mm. You know, why do you think different from me? Why does my missus think different from my four-year-old, my seven-year-old, whatever? We're interested, and we want to get to the bottom of things, and that's what psychology is about. It's about getting to the bottom of the way we think. Um, and there's value in that, and it's sort of interesting to understand, to try and to try and understand where this sort of different mode of being or thinking come from. But where's the, you have to figure out what the value is when you're talking about your own life mm. and how you interact with your own kids and mm. your own parents and stuff. Um, I would say, well, fuck that temptation off. Maybe if we find something that works, we should just fucking implement it and see what happens. I don't think I'll regret it. Oh, no. no. That's the thing. But I'm the same. I'm the same as you. So I, I, I don't tell my kids all of them. I do, though. That's I do. <laughs> right. That's what I'm saying I all the time. But that you're doing, I've, are you doing that as a reaction? To I think so. That? Right. Uh, but my, my dad didn't tell me he loved me, so I'm carrying it on. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, fuck him. <laughs> but I do think. I do, uh, honestly, uh, yeah, I do think. But that's probably just because it's something that, that was missing from my childhood, that's all. Could be. I don't know. I don't know if there's that much value. I go back to my earlier point that I think it's it, it's inherent and it's understood, maybe even subconsciously. Mm. Wait, you know, I mean, but, but you'll meet people who had fathers who hated them. I'm not in that position. I know my dad loves me. He doesn't need to tell me. Mm. I know. And, it, and it's mutual. And it's the same with my kids. But I imagine there are people that you've spoke to who are that have been damaged in that way. In that they, they've understood that their father fucking hates them. And it's real, you know. Well, it's it, the other thing I think about as well, which comes back to bedtime, is Marcus Aurelius's meditations you know which quote I'm thinking about, which I'm going to butcher? No, I don't know. Um, is it something along the lines of kiss your child tonight like it's the last time you will ever see them? Yeah. Yeah. So I think about that. That's one of the meditations I think about all the time. Because it could, it could. You know, it's like a, probably a million to one. No, but yeah, but it's it's based in reality. That's what I mean. And this is... especially so in, you know, when was Marcus Aurelius around? Yeah. 100 AD so, or something? Yeah. So, you know, it was even more prescient then, wasn't it? Yes, and still prescient today. 
Um, maybe this is something we should do. We should get stoic on. Mm. I've been I've been following a couple of stoic philosophers, like modern day mm. stoicists. Well, stoicism again, bringing it back to CBT, takes a lot from that. Is it? Yeah. Well, your thoughts are your thoughts, aren't they? Essentially, Does, mm. it has no bearing over what you do or don't do. Influences them. Do or do not. Mm. There is no try. Exactly. Yeah. That's what Yoda said, man. Yeah. And that's stoic, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of value in it. Mm-hmm. It's like um, I'm not. I'm not well versed. At all. That, I mean, that's part of the attraction for getting a, a stoic philosopher on. And that is something I don't know much about. I'd like to learn about it. Um, I think there's probably something to it. Uh, yeah, so that's another book that I need to read is The Meditations. Oh, right. You can get it on Audible. Yeah, I've got the I think, Audible uh, version. Yeah, no, I think that's cheating. Yeah, I do, because um, you can't meditate on The Meditations if it's an audio book in no. the same vein. No. I'm surprised I haven't got it. I'd be surprised if I don't have a version of it. Oh, I'll tell you what, I've got a like I've got like a penguins compendium <laughs> of the of the Stoics. <laughs> I have, and it's got some Aurelius in it. Well and some other guys. Stoicism was the uh it's kind of an outside force, wasn't it, in the Roman world? How do you mean outside force? Well, Cicero was famously Quite stoic. Yeah, but he yeah. also um, criticised it, I think. Yeah. So it goes beyond him. It goes back to the Greeks, doesn't it? Stoicism. Oh, yes. Yeah, well, all philosophy. I mean, <laughs> when you sort of compartmentalising these philosophies into ideas like Stoicism, I think they all go back to, to Greek. as that... the founding. In our Western fucking paradigm, I mean, you could argue that a lot of them go back to India. Yeah, you know, or, or wherever. But as far as, as far as records, written treatises we have, then yeah, it probably goes back to Greece. Yeah. But you can, the Stoicism or the Stoic um, philosophy uh, particularly resonated with me because it it's just a stiff upper lip, isn't it? Would you not say? There's more to it than that. I think uh, no, it's 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 more. Um, it's more uh, the big word begin with H. It's more holistic than that. It's not a stiff up lip at all costs. And um, people might see the outside mm. sheen of it to maybe be a stiff of stiff stiff upper lip. <laughs> but there, there are foundations underlying it. It's it's rational. It's it's kind of rationalistic in a lot of ways. Um, I don't know. I'm not I, like like I said before. Philosophy is my fucking blind spot. I only know bits of it. Um, that's why I think it would be get, good to get someone on mm-hmm. talk about it. There are a lot of modern, like, YouTube guys you can watch, and gals, who talk about stoicism in the modern world, you know, how you can implement it. And and it's, you know, uh, that's kind of, to think of it as as uh, as of just a stiff 
upper lip is a, a kind of reductionist. So, mm. I said, why you say it? Because that's the image that comes to your head. Well, I th- but there's I, more to it than that. What I've grasped from it, and it's very limited, is a large part seems to be kind of your emotions are your emotions, and they shouldn't guide how you behave. Essentially, yeah, to a degree, a helicopter view. Yeah, maybe. Um, it's not about sort of putting your emotions away and locking them up. It's about recognize, recognize. Well, yeah, that's, again, that's why Temkin, he talks about Buddhism, Stoicism, something else as well, influenced the way they, again, classics. But the world that he built his um, theory in is very much different to the world now. So, like, you know, people were put in an, or opted to go in an asylum uh, in the 60s who had, like, depression. You know, so you're at home, sat at home, um, being depressed, <coughs> stopped going to work, whatever. You were just put in an asylum. And he started basically seeing these people and he, and he, the idea is, is he started getting frustrated by psychoanalysis because it took years. You weren't allowed. And that's the thing. Oh, who said that? Um, no, it's something off. Have you, have you watched Stutz? So there's this uh, film, it's uh, Jonah Simpson. And this is like, it's it's very much Jonah Simpson. It's not Jonah fucking Simpson. Jonah Hill. <laughs> fucking Jonah Hill Simpson. He's, he's not the founder <laughs> of fucking Springfield. <laughs> Just going to lay this cornerstone <laughs> down here. Simpson Town. Yeah, so... Springfield Town. <coughs> Jonah Hill. So... The fat lad. Yeah. Isn't it? So, my understanding of American um, therapy is a lot of it is still based in psychoanalysis. And this Stutz guy said, um, when he was, like, training... He's, he's a psychiatrist, so he went... He did his medical degree, and then he went into psychiatry... Um, he um, said that when he was doing his training, one of his people, he said something, uh, Stutz, he's called something Stutz, that's his surname, Phil, he's called Phil, uh, Phil Stutz. He said, um, I just wish, you know, I could just tell them to do this and it make you feel better. He said, and his supervisor said, don't you dare intervene in their um, day-to-day life. They've got to come to their own realisation, essentially. So that's the argument against psychoanalysis in that it takes ages. And again, that's the argument against CBT in that 
it's been put down into these, um, right, you're diagnosed with panic, GAD, health, anxiety, depression, yada, 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 psychosis, whatever. Fucking hell. Yeah. And quite, All of them? Well, quite often you present, I, I can assess someone and quite often they're depressed, they worry about stuff. So put it into like layman's terms, essentially um, they're sad, they're worried about their health, they just worry about everything. They sometimes have panic attacks, sometimes. Um, what are some of the other things I treat? I can't remember. Um, all the other anxiety disorders. And uh, they have a phobia. Everyone has a phobia. Really? Like a normal phobia, like snakes or something, or a, a weird phobia like escalators. Well, I think, I, I, why would you say an escalator phobia is weird? Because escalators aren't dangerous. Why? Because they just take you from this level to the next level. But um, what happens if you watched a video about someone's cardigan being eaten by an escalator and you get oh, trapped? That was unlucky. <laughs> Good job I'm not wearing a cardigan. <laughs> but... Uh, Why do you, do you not think there are rational phobias? No. No, all phobias are rational because mm. they all come down to n- nurture. No. A, a previous childhood and its experience. No. They have, no. A ba- they have a basis in fear. So this is where the behaviorism comes in, in that um, the fear, that the thing, the stimulus has been as- associated um, with a certain situation. Oh, right. Well, maybe it hasn't. What if it hasn't? Well, that doesn't happen. Oh, right. So all phobias are related to a, a trigger, a trigger moment in childhood or adolescence. Not childhood. Could happen in ad. All right, but an, an event. Or, so the or, reason... or a realisation. doesn't have to happen. All right, so just the realization of a possibility that my cardigan could get dropped in an elevator. Yeah. Why is that irrational? Because it's unlikely. It's unlikely, yeah, but it's not irrational. All right. Well, is that not just a numbers game? Yeah. The difference but, between but not, irrational and unlikely. Exactly. So why is it irrational to think that your cardigan may get stuck in an escalator? And it might mangle your arm or something. Because you're more likely to get it by bus, get into a shopping centre. Yeah, I know. But it's are, you, not... are you afraid of that? No. Well, why are you afraid of the escalator then? Well, that's one of the cognitive arguments against it. Right. Quite often doesn't work. Well, um, maybe not, no. But um, you would try that as a therapist, probably. Would you? You'd sort of tentatively say, mm. no. What if you're not even wearing a cardigan? Would you still be afraid of, of of the escalator? Yeah, and then what tends to happen is like people. Yes, <laughs> it's gonna eat me up. <laughs> oh yeah, um, but why is fear irrational? Fear is not irrational. Exactly, like irrational phobias. But this is the thing. So the fear. So this is a a universal. Unless you're a psychopath, you have no fear. Um, and that's why they end up like doing all this weird stuff to get that feeling 
essentially. Um, it is it is rational because it could happen, right? But realistically, I would say remember, it is irrational. If you if you're going to be have a phobia of a, a very specific thing, mm-hmm. if there are if it's more likely that you're going to die in several other ways before you encounter such a thing, I would say that is irrational. Why are you afraid of the escalator and not the bus? You're more likely to be hit by the bus than be chewed up by the escalator. See, this is the thing. That doesn't work. When you... I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if it works. I'm not trying to heal people. I'm trying to understand why they fear things. Well, that it's a, it's a, a fruitless expedition that you're engaging in. Right. Because the fear has been associated with a certain stimulus. It's already there anyway. Yeah. So you can't talk them out of it. No. So what is it, exposure therapy then? Essentially, if it, if the cognitive side doesn't work, yeah. What's the cognitive side? Just talking about what it. What you said. All oh, right, saying you're stupid. <laughs> Why are you afraid of that when this could happen? Yeah. So trying to do it through logic. Mm. When that doesn't work, then you would start you. with that. You would say, okay, so what are the chances? It's called the inverted pyramid, essentially. So, like... If someone's got a, a fear of um, giving their child HIV, for example. Oh, my God. So you would say, um, okay, how many people in the population have HIV? X percent. How do, do you have HIV? <laughs> exactly, yeah. And then <clears throat> what is the percentage likelihood that you would interact with someone like that? Then what are the chances of that bloodborne virus being passed on? How many, you know, so like the cognitive side would be you would have to drink. Do you remember that? That in I remember this in primary school. I because like the the tombstone advert was a thing, wasn't it? Or it just passed the you know, HIV was kind of around well, it was definitely around in the eighties, wasn't it? When we were in primary school and into the early nineties. Not so much. By the time we got into school it was well, high that, school. Was... Well, high school, but I remember in I remember us having an assembly. This might be a total made up thing in primary school, sitting down in the hall, cross legged, and there being a bucket. This probably wasn't a bucket, but someone saying, in order for you to get HIV, you would have to drink a bucket full of yeah. saliva. I remember yeah. that being quoted to me as a child. So maybe we were moving away from that point of, you know, all people with HIV are going to kill you. To, it's was, probably quite hard to get well, it. That was all sort of propaganda, wasn't it? Well, maybe. Well, Fauci was behind it. Uh, it's a hard... It's always... I, I believe it's always been a hard disease to get. Well, it's blood on blood, isn't it? So... Yeah. Being horrible. It's fucking hard to get. And But how does that equate with the messaging in the eighties about HIV? It's like the COVID stuff. They completely blew it out of proportion. 
And I'm sure they knew that they were talking bullshit. I remember hearing stories about getting people getting it off the toilet seat. What, HIV? Yeah, people getting it from the dentist. I'm sure that happened. Mm. But these stories became urban myths then, and it just raised the fear of this thing, which was, sorry, but it was extremely located to homosexual men. Yeah. Women didn't, you know, there wasn't millions of women dying of HIV. But it's the likelihood that you would, which is the point that I resisted saying before, which is in gay sex, you're more likely to have some small fissures in the anus, in the sphincter and the penis because, you know, the nature of the sex, especially if you're like kind of excited and you just shove it in. Yeah. Which, you know, some people would enjoy. Um, it's more likely that it would tear. How much on was side. it how much was it to do with people taking poppers and, and twatting their immune system before they even engage in these acts? I don't know. I don't know either. Is that is that like a thing that does that It's a hypothesis. Need to go for a wee. I know. Well, pause. Go for a wee. I'm gonna need one as well. Are you gonna cut all the <laughs> gaps out then? <laughs> Do you think putting the headphones and talking through a microphone um, changes what you talk about? I don't know. I mean, it probably depends how comfortable the headphones are mm. for a start. You don't realise you're wearing them. Mm. Uh, I suppose it depends. I mean, when we started, we didn't wear headphones. We just had the mics in the room, and I just wore headphones. I just used to monitor it. Uh, It changes when you're making something for someone else to listen to. So you need to be aware of what it sounds like. Mm. Unfortunately, that's uh, the way it is. Uh, There's no getting away from that. It probably does. I don't know. I think um, it depends who you're talking to. So uh, if I'm talking to you, it's naturally more comfortable because mm. we've known each other forever. And so, um, and also, once you've been doing this for a while, you're aware of the sound of your own voice. Mm. Like uh, when we first started and I was the only one wearing headphones, I was very aware of the sound of my own voice. It sounds strange and stuff. Yeah. But once you've done 250 episodes at three three hours of pizza, it's like, well, that's what it sounds like. So Three hours of pizza. Yeah, you get used to it. So I don't think that, that impinges at all. And it depends on the setting as well. It's like, it's like psychedelics, setting, setting. Mm. You know, um... This is very different, what we're doing tonight, from what we'd normally do. Mm. Having the fire on and we're not looking at a screen. There's mm. someone, you know, talking to someone we don't know through a screen. It's a completely different atmosphere, isn't it? Yeah, but when we have a guest on, it just seems that you're having a conversation with the guest. <sighs> it Me. Seem, it doesn't seem like you're 
you don't give off the vibe that you're, um, you know, like the swan. You know, what's a swan? You know, it glides across the surface, oh, but the underneath, its, its feet are pedaling away. Doesn't never seems that way. Well, it's never like that. No, I only get sort of anxious immediately before we start recording because mm. of the technology. Mm. And if you got to click all the buttons and fucking do this and click that and hit the button there and turn the faders up and turn them mm. down and whatever. So I only, I only get anxious then because I want it to be uh, like sound professional, professional and sound slick, and it all goes out right. You know how it should sound and how it should look. Um, as soon as we start talking, and you know everything's coming through the streams okay and the, everything's working, then. Oh, absolutely fine. It's just a conversation, then, isn't it? Mm. You know, wherever it goes. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty relaxed. I, I sort of, I feel um, guilty sometimes that I talk too much and don't give you and Ben enough chance to ask questions and stuff with the guests. No, it very much depends on the guest. So, like the last guy. I thought that was like a mate. That was like a really. That was another high point. Ethan. Was it Chris? No, the guy about like the the fucking comet hitting hitting the. Oh sheet. fuck! Al Al Albert Al uh, <coughs> Zamora. It's not Antonio. Antonio Zamora. Shit. Yeah. That was like one of those podcasts where it's like, it's like an amazing story. And it, it, it almost like the guy before. I just have that was like beyond me. That kind of that level of esoteric knowledge now. But like other people, I feel like I can come up with a question. Kind of thing. That's the difference, I think. Well. Uh... With like uh, Zamora, we're talking about sort of hard, hard science, really. I mean, mm. you know, he was talking about the Carolina Bays and you know the comet coming down and splurging mm. all the ice and everywhere. So, mm. and it's it, yeah, I understand what you're saying. Where, uh, like Ethan, the week before, where we're talking more about philosophy and esoterica and stuff like that. It's like, where do you take it? Mm. It's like, like, I mean, with Antonio, it's easy. You can say, well, how fucking big were these rocks? You know, Mm. how big was the tidal wave? Or, Mm. you know, what is the spread? Mm. What's the biggest or the smallest? You know, it's it's easier in that way. Whereas we're, like the week before with Ethan, it was very more experimental in a way. It's more um, introspective. Mm. It's more about, Oh, psychology in a way as well. You see, I think, I think so. you'd like these guys, like these esoterists, because a lot of them are mad young fans. Like, well, now that's why they, that. Well, that's why I understand why. Uh, well, from you saying that, and that's why um, it makes more sense that uh, Ryan <laughs> liked them because. It, it, basically, reading Jung, he just he draws in all of the myths, all of the religions. He talks about Islam, talks about Christianity, talks about 
Judaism. This is the other thing about um, this idea around Yahweh, this is, which is something that's been touched upon in multiple uh, podcasts but never really explored, which would be something I would be really interested in getting someone on about. Just talking about Yahweh being good and bad rather than being good. Because God is in Christianity, God is good. It's not God and it's not good and bad. But you know, that's completely the opposite even of the King James Bible. Would you not say? I mean the thing is you're uh, you're bringing in Christianity where we have the idea of the Trinity. Yeah. So we have the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And we, I say we, Christianity has superimposed Yahweh into the Father mm. figure. But the Yahweh is a Jewish God. Mm. That's what I mean. Yeah. Fire and brimstone. Yeah. Sodom and Gomorrah. Old Testament. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's why it was, sorry, um, in um, he touched upon it in the history of Rome as well. About... Mike Duncan. Yeah, about God. Mike, he only touches upon it because it's very much about, you know, this emperor did this, this Caesar did that, whatever. And that's why it gets difficult, he said, when it splits to te- Tetrarchy or whatever, because you've got like four of them. Um, in that, the idea, it moves away from God being this like, uh, oh, that was it. Um, it wasn't that, sorry. It was more about how um, initially God was in the emperor, or God was the emperor, essentially, or the emperor figure. You could take that back in civilizations, you know, Berserkses or whatever. And then it became God was in the upper class or the equestrians or whoever. And then Christianity was the Holy Spirit's within all of us. Everybody's part of God and mm. God knows you. I, I just thought that was wild. But yeah, wild was, would be the term in that before that, nobody had a piece of God then. No. You'd have idols in your household. So nobody had a soul. And then that's the same. Well, you know, it was very, it was light. It skimmed over it. But it it was quite an interesting idea in that it went from multiple gods. um, Nature-based gods. God of the water. The Romans had a god for fucking everything. Exactly. (laughs) <laughs> to uh, Sol Invictus, to the Son of God, essentially. Um, and then everybody has a soul. And then that soul... And then it changes through thousands of years, doesn't it? 2,000 years, well, 1,500 years from the end of the Roman Empire, if we're just taking them as the basis of society. Um, to, you know, we have a soul because we believe in God. They don't have a soul because they're not, they don't believe in Christianity. Really? 
I would say so. Would you not think? What? Who? Who has that mindset? I don't mean now. I mean, like you know. Well, maybe now. Yeah. When? I don't know. I I I would say that most Christians believe that all all people have souls. I don't think there's a demarcation. They need to be saved. Well, yeah, uh, all souls need to be saved from a Christian point of view. Mm. I don't think that's. Uh, I don't think that's arguable. I think that's what I'm sure that's what Reverend Jamie said to us on the podcast from a Christian point of view. It's like all souls need to be saved. But then maybe those people don't realise they have a soul. That's what I mean. No. So, like, in Roman society, people didn't have that concept of their own essence, soul. But then when I'm talking about it, it doesn't make sense. (laughs) So I listened to it and thought, oh, that's an interesting idea. Like, these people were just going around like NPCs, 21st (laughs) century. Uh, Is it an idiom? Is that an idiom? No. No, it's not an idiom, is it? Um, Or a 21st century uh, analogy. It is, isn't it, I suppose? Um, And then... Because, you know... I'm going to take it back 200,000 years. And just thinking about... Right, so we... The Paracas. Well... The elongated skulls. Well, no, no. I mean, so we've been around. So, it, you know, it was 30,000 years, 50,000 years when humans were around. Homo erectus. What were we called? Homo sapien. Homo sapien. We've been around for 30,000 years initially. Well, not even initially. 6,000 years initially. <laughs> yeah. Then 30, then 50, then 100, then 200. And then some people argue, would argue 300. Yep. So are we saying that people with exactly the same capacity to believe and think and come up with ideas around solving issues and all the rest of it have been around for 300,000 years and there hasn't been religions before that, societies, civilizations. We just lived in tribes. And I, Stone I, Age. Like what you said, that, you know, I don't mean a tribe in a derogatory kind of way, just, you know. That was the normal way, forever, for 300,000 years. But was it, though? Well, yeah, I think so. Do you? Yeah. But how long is it... Right, okay. So how long does it take for plastic to disappear? Plastic? Mm. Oh, uh, is it about 10,000? How long does it take for iron to disappear? Oh, 300. Not even that. Probably. Rust and nothing, doesn't it? Steel? (laughs) Yeah. Nothing. So I find it... Very hard to believe that if the science science says that, you know, Homo sapiens have been around for 300,000 years, that there hasn't been any other civilizations. 
prior to writing as we understand it? Sumerian. Well, this is the other thing, writing. So Sumerian wow. text. But something happened, didn't it? Outside of science. 10,000 years ago. So that wiped out everything. Yeah. I fucking love Sweatman. Martin Sweatman? That idea... That that uh, goes round in my head about the comets that went round the world, the world, the Earth, and that's the basis for a religion. Yeah, so Taurids and the Perseids and uh, wandering stars, essentially, isn't it? Yeah, and um, the idea that the comet split into three—I don't remember that. It's probably not three, but it's split, and there was uh, a good comet, not a good comet, and a bad comet, and the bad. So there's a so basically these things came round the atmosphere, and you saw them, and they like pelted the Earth, this huge comet or whatever, and it like destroyed the Earth or whatever intermittently, and then but they always came round, but then every like it would be every thousand years. It would happen, and it would pelt the earth again, destroy everything, and then a thousand years of being okay, pelt the earth again. This is Enki, comet Enki, isn't it? Well, that's what it is traced back to today, yeah. isn't it? I th- I find that a very interesting. That's mad. Yeah, we could probably get him, you know, Sweatman. Yeah. He no, was, he, no, he was on. He was on the Netflix thing. Oh, that ship has sailed. Mm. I bet we could get him <laughs> if we had enough YouTube subscribers. We could get him. Yeah. That gives you clout, doesn't it? Yeah. Anyway, I we... mean, he. Yeah, I'd love to talk to him. Yeah, and like that, mainly about that idea around. I'd have to read the book again. But that idea of um, <coughs> the recurring comet, yeah, and the um, the cycle, we go through it every year. Yeah, no, like yeah. the the dust, don't we? You know, it's at Halloween. Randall Carlson draws the Halloween myths to the tourist well, meter yeah, stream. Yeah. Well, I mean, I watched I watched his video ten years ago, watching him. Talk about the torrid meteor stream being related to Halloween, All Hallows' Eve. And, uh, oh, yeah, this is um, why. June and October, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, end of October. It's like the last week of October, first week of November. It's like the, the peak. So the peak is the end, 31st of October. Yeah, We see shit in the sky going off. And we wonder why we have a festival here every year about things in the sky. <laughs> I mean, it's it's... Convinced, you know, they make convincing arguments. I bet we could get sweat, old sweaty. We can get old sweatman on. I'd love. It. Honestly, that book was wicked. All right, I've not. I, well, you you've been. Um, we're talking about prehistory decoded. Mm. You've been uh, seriously moved by this book. I thought I enjoyed it. Um, it didn't have as as big an impact on me, I guess. Because it was it was quite science based, wasn't it? And he, he, numbers and 
modeling and yeah. predictions and statistics and he tried uh, to make it science based didn't he well fair play why not the I mean, chance he basically brought it down to chances the thing is when you're communicating to the modern person you have to do that otherwise they won't entertain it they'll say witchcraft burn him at the stake you know so he has to do that he has to use maths to rationalize his argument which is good i don't have no problem with that this is the other thing is like maths okay Well, it can make sense of certain things, but not small things. <coughs> well, like subatomic things. Well, exactly, yeah. So there's no unifying theory yet, is there? Like, we're we're in the middle. Mm. We have the really big stuff mm. out in the cosmos, mm. the as above, if you like. Yes. That goes on infinitely. Allegedly. Well, not infinitely. I don't think it's infinite. I think it has a beginning, a middle, and end. But, you know, they say it goes on infinitely. That's a lack of perception in my eyes. But it goes on beyond our perceptions. We can't imagine how big the cosmos is. That's above. And then when you look below and you go down microscopically, the same thing happens. It keeps going further and further down. So you get to quarks and shit like this, things that... We're in two places in, uh, at once, and they can communicate to each other faster than the speed of light mm. across the galaxy. Yeah, we we have no idea, <laughs> no idea what's going on there, and that's as above. And again, how many people know that? What do you mean, like in the gen pop? Yeah. Well, obviously none, because it's so much easier to control people when you fill the heads with bullshit. It's- you know, Love Island's on. Watch that. Andrew Tate, <laughs> watch him. Watch him roast some feminists. <laughs> or watch Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson destroys. <laughs> it's easier to watch that stuff and, and take it in rather than think about <laughs> the nature of reality, for fuck's sake. We're in the middle. We're in the middle. That's why they always say as above, so below. It works both ways, but we only seem to be coming to this understanding in the last few decades that it goes down as well. Mm. Like, it's fractal. It's totally fractal. It's mad. And it makes you think, well, maybe it's maybe it's not even real. But the, the other interesting thing is it seems to be a black hole in the centre of our galaxy. And that's why it's spinning. So, like, you know... Uh, 60, 70 years ago. I can't remember when they realised it wasn't the Milky Way. It wasn't a line. It was a spinning thing. Spiral mm. galaxy. That it. So in the middle of all galaxies is a supermassive black hole. That's all they say. Well, yeah. That's what they, the computers tell them. Mm. They, it's to do with gravity, I guess. They, they pick up mm. some massive mound gravity in the middle so that must be a supermassive black hole could uh, be god could be well, gods well they don't fucking know they don't know what a black hole is they don't know what dark matter is dark matter makes up 97% of all matter in the universe they have no idea no idea what it is 
It, I'll tell you what it isn't. It's definitely not the ether. The ether. That's been completely debunked. That's nonsense. That's non-science. It's pseudoscience. But dark matter, yeah, we know fuck all about it. And it makes up well, most ether, of everything. Ether is just dark matter, isn't it? I don't fucking know. I don't know. But no, you can't say ether. Ether is a pseudoscientific term. Mm. But Maybe it's, it's the same. But it's called dark matter because that seems more sciencey. Can't call it ether. Well, you can't admit. We've been saying for two hundred years that it's nonsense. You can't then say, "Oh, sorry, we were wrong." If to give it a different name, mm. you know, this is a, this is a part of the problem with uh, science. It's too slow to wake up to its mistakes. Very slow, particularly when it comes to personal health. I've uh, got. You're going to do some New Year's resolutions. You thought about any? Yeah, I was thinking about journaling. Oh, what, like um, an everyday thing or a weekly thing or what? I was thinking about writing a line or a few lines every day. It might be quite nice to pass on. (coughs) Sort of in a a diary format. Yeah, like saying, you know, uh, Elder Son was uh, a little bit bored when I read... BFG tonight. He wanted to get back to his uh, tablet. Or, you know, youngest one was a little bit difficult. Threw a car at my... um... Scrotum. (laughs) (laughs) That kind of thing, yeah. I think that'd be interesting. I think that, again, comes back to my want to know more... I used to do that for holidays. You know, when on a family holiday, mm. I'd do a diary for that week, mm. and I would just put down in my notes app on my phone what we did every day. Mm. So it'd be like Tuesday, woke up, went to the pool, uh, had lunch at whatever, uh, afternoon, went to the beach, mm. evening, you know, uh, crazy gang, what is it called, the Seaside Squad. <laughs> you know, whatever. And I started doing doing that on holiday because otherwise you forget. <laughs> that's the only reason I did it. So maybe that's a, a broader extrapolation mm. that you're doing. Well, I don't know. I think it's quite interesting to... I'd be interested to read what my dad or mum was thinking at a certain point in their life. Mm. What was going on. Not think. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't. I don't think. I don't think it can hurt, can it? No. And uh, that's part of what we're doing now, is it not? Yeah, I think so. But a lot of what we do is not really yeah, about family life. No, it's become a show rather than what it used to be. It's changed. Exactly. It's become less of a journal and more journalism. Mm. And uh, investigation, really, hasn't it? But that's maybe that's um, a consequence of doing it every week. Is like you you run out of things to. I think that was definitely when you do a hundred episodes of just talking to each other, you start repeating things, don't you? And that's why we've brought back. these more open episodes 
I think it's know? a good. Th- I think it's a good thing to do. I do as well. It's like um, it's freeing in some respects, isn't it? Because again, um, going back to what we said before, we don't talk. No. You know, and uh, when we're doing the normal podcast, we don't talk. We get five minutes before we hit record and five minutes after, and that's about it, isn't it? We don't get a chance to talk. So um, I think this is a good thing to do this every month, Mm. once a month. So it was a good suggestion, I think, by Nick. And uh, for ourselves, I mean, it's like, it's not about... um, People probably might not like it. (laughs) They might not listen to it, but... It's not about that. It's, uh, it's more for us, really, than anyone else. So I think it's a good thing to uh, to do. We should mm. keep it up. And maybe that that maybe that will make the other three episodes in the month better, because we'll you know I'll be more focused on on what we're doing and stuff. I don't know. Mm. It is what it is. We're not. It's like it's, it's difficult. Uh, Grime America got Adam on, Adam Curry, the podfather. He was on this week. Really? Finally. What do you mean, finally? He'd been asking for a while. A years, years. They had his co-host on, like, uh, four or five years ago. Mm. That's what got me listening to No Agenda, because John was on Grime America, and he was bigging up his show. So I started listening to it, and that's when I got hooked. And they've been after Adam ever since. And he finally appeared at the Podfather. Oh! Came down from the clouds and appeared on the show. Nice. That's good. Did you do it? How long did they get? They did an hour and a half, I think. That's all right. So they fucking did a show on Christmas Day, man. Live. Every Sunday, Thursday. Doesn't matter what day it is. Don't care if it's Christmas Day. We're podcasting. America. No, uh, no agenda. Oh. Did they yeah. have kids? Yeah. But they're old and they're grown up. Yeah. They're grown up. Um. Yeah. That's a different world. It is a different world. They're, uh, I mean, Grand America have been going for over 10 years, I think now. I think they've been doing 10 years. When they started, two thousand eight, I want to say. No, maybe it's twenty twelve. Maybe they've been doing twelve years, ten years. Mm. No, it's got to be more than that because I remember listening to the Joe Rogan experience when it was December the twenty first, twenty twelve, when the Mayan calendar ended. Mm. And I'm sure I was listening to Grand American before then. Because that's pretty much when I stopped listening to Joe Rogan, 2012. So they must have been going longer than that. (sighs) (laughs) Oh, fuck. Can't bend that way. (laughs) Got my legs up. New Year's resolutions. Did he even give me one? Yeah. What? We'll start journaling. 
journaling. That was it. Probably won't do it, like. No. No, we won't. What's yours? Do it for then? a week. <laughs> Thank you, up. I've got a couple. Uh, one idea I've got is fasting. But you already do it. No, I mean real fasting. Like 24-hour fast. Ooh. I want to give that a go. I've heard massive benefits from fasting. Mm. So I'm going to try that. Oh, I already do like 17, 18-hour fasts mm. on the regular, a couple of three times a week. So I think maybe once a week. Well, I'm going to start once a month and then go to once every three weeks, once every two. Maybe do a 24-hour fast, see if I can do it. I hear it's very good for your long-term health. It introduces this uh, mechanism, which I can't remember the name of, where your body goes into starvation mode. So it starts eating your own cells. But obviously it starts with the diseased cells and the cancerous cells, the mal-constructed cells. So I think it's probably something... uh, it's a weird thing, like, cancer, uh, one in three deaths now, cancer. Mm. Like, 20 years ago, it was one in four. Mm. Uh, 50 years ago, it's one in 100. Mm. It's like, it's it's what kills everyone. It's going to be what kills everyone. And I'm pretty convinced that it's all lifestyle that causes this shit. And uh, so maybe there are ways we can tweak our lifestyle to to uh, help it. The other thing I learned about cancer, and I can't remember the technical term for it, but like your normal cells, they feed off uh, sugar, fat, protein. That's Mm. the fuel. Mm. Preferably sugar or fat or protein. Whereas cancer, it only feeds off sugar. Mm. Cancer cells don't feed off fat or protein. So, that's another, you know, don't listen to me. I'm an idiot. I don't know anything about anything, but it's some of the stuff I've been hearing that thinks maybe get off the sugar, maybe do some fasting and probably be good for you in the long run. It makes sense, doesn't it, around the glucose thing? In that, well, like simple glucose, like sugar, that's why it's so addictive, because it wouldn't have been available. No, no, it'd be it'd be a luxury, an unusual find to get some sugar. Well, exactly. So if you think in a natural environment, it would be fructose. From fruit, fruit or, juice and stuff. Or, you know, in the northern hemisphere. That's the other thing is like... <coughs> everything we eat now has been bred to taste nicer so vegetables I think of the vegetable that I think of that tastes sweet is carrots and carrots used to be purple <laughs> you've heard that story no gone. and then I can't remember in which um well, 
orange, which country do you think of? Is the uh, the colour you associate Spain. with Spain? Orange, Seville. No, that's a, that's a, that's an orange. Holland, Holland. Yeah. So apparently, a queen or something to do with a um, like a marriage or something like that. She was getting married. So breeding is that the term? Carrot so an orange carrot was like a blue lobster. Happened like every one million. Right. So they found those. So I don't know how you do selective breeding. Yeah, well they did it, didn't they? And then everybody started, Oh right, okay, it's orange. So carrot you can still get purple carrots, you know. William of Carrot. William of Orange. That's where it would have come from. Is he from Holland? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Hanovers, when the Hanovers came over and took over the monarchy. So, and that's where, it, apparently, that's where it, uh, orange carrots come from. Yeah. I can believe that. Yeah. So, um, the, so you can still get purple carrots, but nobody buys them. I got a purple carrot. I've heard yeah. a similar thing with peppers. You know how you get, you know, you go to Aldi and you get a pack of an orange, a red, and a yellow pepper. Isn't it to do with the time that they've been in the ground? They're all the same. They're all the same fucking pepper, but it's to do with the time that they're picked. Well, that yeah, determines you would the think that a green, it appears green, it goes orange, it goes yellow, or it goes yellow, orange, and then it goes, it goes red. red. Yeah. 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 But. Like a a green pepper goes better with certain food. <laughs> Fucking green pepper doesn't go out, mate. It does. It goes. Fuck me. There's Bring a cer- back. There's a certain. <laughs> there's a certain curry. I can't remember what it is. It tastes better with that bitter. Yes, the the shitmeister. It tastes better with a bitter. Uh, pepper. Green pepper. Than it does with a sweet one. Yeah. But that's the same. Bollocks. That's a ripening fruit, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, we're sort of out of touch with our food, aren't we? We don't, um, it's just there on the shelves. We, we don't take any ownership or interest in where it comes from. We just pick it up and pay the bill. Well, I make a point of um, reading the label. Of where all so I I've been buying grapes throughout the year, and they're from Peru now, South Africa. Um, it goes from they can extend um, a polytunnel extends the growing season by three months, I think. So like strawberries, you can get strawberries from the UK up until about October November in a polytunnel. But then it swaps around to the obviously the, the southern hemisphere. So you start flying in strawberries from Peru, Egypt, Morocco, um, Spain. Spain was quite up, up until recently, I think until about November, Spain, strawberries. Um, but it just goes on and they, do, they taste like shit, basically. They taste, <coughs> they taste like shit. Well, they don't taste the like shit. The southern hemisphere. Is they, that because they've been shipped? Well, they just don't taste of anything. Don't say something. No. I said this before. I said the best tasting... Um, what do 
do I eat? It's not munch, too. Pussy. Always. Um, sugar snap peas. Mm. The best tasting sugar snap peas are from Morrison's, and it's there's a six week period in the summer when they taste nice. It actually tastes sweet. Yeah, because that's when they're in season. In the UK, and they've not been shipped from Kenya. Yeah. So I get loads of stuff from Kenya, Peru. It's basically Kenya, Peru, and India. Do you know what's uh, what they can't fuck up? Mm. Eggs. Eggs are eggs. Don't matter where they come from. They always taste good. Uh, I think there's a, a difference in the gelatinous. So they can be more watery. From where? What do you mean? The the older they are. Oh, if they've gone off. Well, do you do, you do that saucepan trick where you no. put them in the saucepan? No. Right. Just if they eat them. If they, if they float the, their foot. They don't go off. If you fucking crack. Like, I've, I've eaten a two-week-old. It says, like, you know... Uh, best before, eat before, or something on the yeah. side, doesn't it? Um, and I've had them two weeks after that, and they're fine. Yeah. I'm sure I have, but I always, I put them in water first, and if they're on the turn, it's just not worth it for me. No. I just chuck them away. No. That reminds me, I've got some black pudding in the fridge. <laughs> got it before Christmas. Mm. I like to treat myself to a fry-up someday. Christmas and New Year. Mm-hmm. I think that day might be upon us. Have you not done it already? No. No, still been eating the, the beige. Just everything's beige. Pork pie, sausage rolls. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did make a wonderful spag bowl last night. Well, so your 11-year-old said. Everyone said. Everyone said it was the best one I'd made. I well, floided it. Floided it with a bottle of red. God, he was brilliant, wasn't he? Was he? Or was he just a pisshead? <laughs> he was a pisshead, wasn't he? But he was funny. I didn't watch it. I, I never I, watched it. That was one of the things I used to watch with my dad and my brother. And he was just funny. Get out of the way, you fucking cameraman. He never said the F word. No, because he always cut it out right, just before he said it. Is that where Gordon Ramsay got his... Uh... Yeah, probably. from. It's Persona, yeah. I think that is the... Um, you are a shit, shit sandwich! The, um... <coughs> yeah, that's basically where it comes from. I think that's in that's just the culture in, in kitchens where you just fucking abuse each other for some reason. I, I get the impression it's like building sites mm. with, like, the rip-taking and the mm. sweaty... Seems like um, a hyper masculine mm. workplace yeah. to me. That's my impression. I don't know if it's true or not. Maybe it's different now. No. You think about like Marco Pierre White sweating away, yeah, with a massive knife in his hand, mm. not taking any shit. Mm. I still put Worcester sauce in everything because of him. This is Marco Pierre White. Puts Worcester sauce and everything. Worcester sauce is a weird thing, isn't it? <coughs> uh, yeah. Who knows? Who knows how they make it? 
Not for no idea. It's the Earl of Worcester, wasn't it? What, you invented it? Allegedly. It was probably one of his kitchen staff. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure he didn't invent it. <laughs> I mean, what is it? It's like, it's like brown piss, isn't it? Well, this other thing. This is this sauce called browning. <laughs> is it called browning? Is it called brown sauce? It's like a Caribbean thing. Oh. Not brown sauce. And I think it's like concentrated, um, you know, when like you boil bones to make a broth and then they just concentrate it down, basically. So I I think it's like a beef beef broth. Like a a bovril. Yeah, but then you boil it more. Right. Concentrate. And do they keep it going forever? Mm. It moves from one house to the other kind of thing. No, no, because that's that's the thing with bread, like the the yeast, like the initial component for baking bread. Mm-hmm. They have like um, heritage yeast that's three hundred years old that mm-hmm. they used to put into the bread to make the bread. Right. I, I maybe it was a, I thought it was a similar thing to keep this bone broth going forever. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, no, it's just like bovril. <laughs> We just have the shit bread. We just have the, bake the, the white bread, bake the brown bread. We just have the shit bread. Do you remember Mighty White? Yeah. The seeds in it. Did it have had, seeds in it? It had fucking all sorts in it. It wasn't white, was it? It was speckled with all sorts of shit. Seeds and bits of fucking turd and all sorts in it. I yeah, I remember Mighty White. I remember Mighty White, like the advert. Yeah, you used then... to have a little freckled boy <laughs> advertising it on the on the jacket, jacket of the loaf. Yeah. Uh, I remember my favourite bread was milk loaf. Really? Whiter than white. Oh, god! And they made it with milk. Gosh. But the more, when I say learned about bread... Loads of bread is made with milk. It's the sugar, basically. So to make like a a leavened bread, you need sugar in it in order for the yeast, the yeast, the yeast to so on. So an unleavened bread is just bread, but it doesn't get the air pockets. That's the, the difference. It's just more dense, essentially. I don't know about it. Uh, her mother-in-law used to bake, uh, like, bake the brown bread, bake the white bread, and she'd do, like, the sourdough bread and stuff like that, and that was really good. Mm. It's like real bread. Her granddad was a baker. He baked the brown bread, he baked the white bread. Well, this is but the other thing, isn't it, that you had a baker, you had a grocer, you had a butcher. Candlestick maker. Exactly. And then it's all just been unified in the supermarket. Yeah, it's probably not good for us, Mom. It's probably really bad. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to go, go, go start your own fucking farm, are Tommy? I don't fucking think so. Yeah. Right. I don't watch um, 
they called. You're trying to pick your fucking blinders. Yeah, I don't watch it. So. You don't fucking matter. Just call me Alfie. Did you watch it to the end? No. There you go. No. I don't watch anything to the end. I didn't watch Westworld. I, didn't... <laughs> I gave up in that on season two. I got halfway through season two and went, whoa, this is taking a dive. <laughs> you still watching that, Westworld? Still going, isn't it? I think I watched the latest season. It was awful. It's been cancelled, I think, now. It was, it was genuinely it was genuinely awful, the last one. Well, yeah. They can't make it good anymore. They really can't. That was HBO. They made House of the Dragon. Yeah, but, you know, we'll see. what We'll see what happens with House of the Dragon. I think we're beyond the pinnacle of um, TV anyway. Absolutely, yeah. I need to go home now. It's like 20 to 1. That's it. Mm. Can't see it. Rizzlers. Filters. All right. We'll sign off then for 2022. Mm. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. I'm not doing it. Staying in. Won't be doing it. Going to a party across the road. Right. Rave. Yeah. Can I come? No. Well, it's not. Um, it's ticketed. <laughs> Is it? Mm-hmm. Right, fair enough. I might crash. I might get crash. No? No. All right. All right. We'll sign off then. See you next year. Yeah. Jehan Sator. Got Dave Matheson coming in. Mm. Uh, who knows lots of good stuff I think coming next year I'm looking forward to it another fantastic year of podcasting yeah. is on the way Ooh, yeah praise yeah. Shabalon and all the Elohim sayonara I like it when it gets a little soft. So it's a two-hander. Have I got a hot one for you today? Based Sigma Chat. Fuck my inner asshole. It was massive. I love you. They know what they're doing, Lair. Congratulations on becoming a doctor of thugonomics. Nikita goes, my darling queens. That's it, man. Game over, my man. My dog face pony Okay, I'm a Marxist. Epic dub. Cross your enemies. <laughs> See them driven before you and hear the lamentations of the women. <laughs> the magic vaccine. The lads, lads, lads. Open your mind. They must all be scientists who just believe in it, you know. Well, I-
My hair, I don't know about you, but it has to be. Uh, it uh, was totally Muzab. Totally Muzab. Yes, yes. Let me pick you in. Who the fuck's that? Yeah, me. Silence. The sun is a deadly laser. Testing, testing, testing. You need to test, 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 test. Your Semites. Oh. I think you're hitting hitting the point, Phil. That uh. Uh, and it really bothers me. Uh, Say, Blockland, will you stop talking? I wish we could vaccinate against stupidity. You know, it's just, you know, super painful, but... What on earth? What have I done? What have I done? Because you're getting bored and you want to have fun. Will you stop talking? But I can't save you if you're not wearing a face mask. Is what it is. Well, it is what it is because you are who you are. That's why it is. Jesus Christ. I'll lead an effective strategy to mobilize true international effort to pressure. I imagine the carrot was my penis. Execute order 69. Oh! Crush your enemies. <laughs> See them driven before you and hear the lamentations of the women. Put on your fucking muzzle if you go to the shop. Uh, if there's anyone out there that can do the real Chewbacca sound, I might marry you. <laughs> May I ask you a question? Did you catch the magic vaccine? Literally. The best man. I'll lead an effective strategy to mobilize. True international effort to pressure. It also holds plural called polluters accountable. Uh, if there's anyone out there that can do the real Chewbacca. Hey, I'm a Marxist. Put on your foot. They must all be signed. You're lying. Bless you. Delightful. I like it when it gets a little soft.